0: You're listening to an airwave media podcast.
1: You're now tuned into the Pod Awful 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 Channel, Pod Awful, Bicorderly Women's Social Club, Days and Convicted. New Party Radio, The Showcase, The Devil's Advocates, The Projection Booth, Awful Flips, Pod Pod Awful.net. Support for the Projection Booth podcast comes from Stitcher Smart Radio. Now podcast listeners can access the latest episodes of The Projection Booth and thousands of other podcasts on the go without downloading or syncing. Stitcher instantly delivers episodes of your favorite shows to your mobile phone. Stitcher Smart Radio can be found in the iPhone and Android app stores or on the web at stitcher.com booth. Sometimes I feel I've got to- We share
2: to a special edition of The Projection Booth. I don't even know if we want to call this uh, a typical episode. I think it's more of a commentary, wouldn't you say, Mr. Mike?
0: Definitely nothing typical about this one.
2: (laughs) Well, we were inspired by a few things for this episode. One is, if you listen to The Projection Booth, you know that I will often uh, show no lack of respect and love for Lloyd Kaufman and all things trauma. And that is because when I was 19, I made an independent film in the Detroit area called Tainted. that got picked up by trauma and uh, been good friends with those guys ever since. So back in, was it 2011 or 2012, something like that. I was talking to the folks from the now defunct Burton theater and they were sort of in transition at the time, trying to find new space and raise some money to, um, to create a new theater and
0: kind of like they are today
2: yeah, kind of like they are today <laughs> and um there was a discussion going around about doing a live drunken commentary to two tainted in which uh, I would basically stand up at the front of the room or sit at the front of the room or fall down at the front of the room, whatever may happen. And they would just ply me with drinks and I would just sort of do a running commentary as the film went on. Uh, That never happened. Although I did think it was an interesting idea. And I also have to say it was inspired by another uh, release from trauma and that would be cannibal the musical. And if you haven't seen cannibal on DVD, do yourself a favor, get a copy of it and listen to the drunken commentary from the South park guys who made that movie. And so basically we kind of put all of that together and, um, Mike had never seen my film and, uh, I guess we just decided that this would be a fun way to spend a Friday evening. you set up? Are you comfortable?
0: I'm set up. I'm comfortable. I got a dog on my lap. I got a gin and tonic at my side.
2: (laughs) I might be visited by the cats from time to time. That's just a given, obviously. Yeah, that's fine. I've got this uh, fine whiskey here, which I'm going to pour my first. Ooh, And my rule is, is I got to drink it all the way down before I pour another one. And that's a, a decent, probably ounce and a half, two ounce pour so. Mm-hmm. Put the cap back on. So um, I have the DVD on. I am on the menu screen. Same here. With the folks playing along at home, um, if they don't have the DVD, you can get uh, it's through our lovely site you can get a few i think i checked today there's probably maybe a dozen left on amazon uh if you want to buy it there then you can buy it from trauma they'll take your money or you can watch on youtube and i don't know i think youtube may put some ads in the play but whatever so this will this will sync up as uh as well as can be expected for what we're doing here and, um, and do you want to start and talk over the uh, the introduction by Lloyd?
0: Well, first I have a question. Yeah. Can you click on Toxie's head? Because it looks like you can.
2: Yeah, it looks like an Easter egg, and I've been trying to get over to it, but it's not. So like, okay, it's a Just... stupid graphic. But actually, what you're looking at there, the um, uh, the the background menu is actually a section of our poster that Troma designed. Oh. Mm. So, uh, so yeah, that, uh, that, that poster's interesting. There, there was a couple of posters. We created one, and um, then they did one, and theirs obviously was a little bit better. Although, the box art, if you get the DVD, uh, a couple of my guys are on the box, but there's two chicks on the front who are, I don't think, in, either, in any of the three movies that you get on this DVD. Because you get uh, Tainted, which is, uh, we give it the namesake, Tainted Vampires, Triple B header. And then you have Sucker the Vampire and Rockabilly Vampire, which had both been uh, previously by Troma, and they just decided to put all three together and make our sort of the lead one, which then gets us into this uh, this intro. So do you want to get into this intro with Lloyd? Sounds good. Have you watched this yet? No, I
0: haven't. This is my first time. I'm a virgin to taint
2: it. Okay, well, I don't know how this is going to play for you because you're going to have to listen to me yak and try to follow what's going on at the same time. Okay. So uh, three, two, one, hit play. Okay, it is Lloyd. He's got this straw boater hat on, which I absolutely love. I've wanted to wear one of those for a lot of times, uh, for a long time. But um, Lloyd does these intros on a lot of the uh, Troma DVDs. And the thing I find funny about this is not only do I get Lloyd, but I get uh, Debbie Rashawn, who I absolutely love. Debbie Rashan's great. Uh, if you haven't seen um, Tromeo and Juliet or Terra Firmer. She's great, and I had a chance to hang out with her when I was in Canon 99 when I was selling Tainted with the Troma crew. They were premiering uh, Terraformer then. So they've got all these you know, jokes, obviously, at the expense of the f- expense of the film being called Tainted, and obviously the taint. So that's so kind of funny.
0: Right. Well, I, I immediately go to bad meat myself. <laughs> So. Or Tainted Love by Soft Cell Yes,
2: yes Yeah. So, Is
0: that where the name came from? Uh, I think it did
2: uh, Sean Farley Who's in it And put up the money And uh, wrote the script He came up with the title And uh, I think the idea for the title Has more to do With the blood issue Than it has to do with Pulling up um, a reference To the Soft Cell song Although, oh, okay. although that's that's still pretty cool because, you know, if you're familiar with the Soft Cell song, there's uh, the uh, Motown reference on the end of it, which I always appreciated, you know. Where'd our love go? Mm-hmm. So that's always nice. It's from Tainsylvania. That's right, Lloyd. Exactly. You know. See, th- this is where I learned all my bad puns from. <laughs> you know, there, there, there were two things that I learned, uh, several things I learned from Lloyd. One is, um, bad puns are fun. And then the second thing is, is never underestimate the power of hyperbole, which he told me. He goes, Thanks to Tainted, you are now an internationally known, critically acclaimed filmmaker which uh, I don't agree with. But he says, hey, it played in more than one country and you got reviewed by more than two people. So therefore, you're internationally renowned and critically acclaimed. <laughs> so here is the Troma logo. So if you're playing along at home and watching on YouTube, you're probably starting it right now, which is exactly. the, the old uh, Troma sky scene of uh, New York City. Now, this quote here, we actually had to pay for. Sarah McLaughlin. yeah, she bums you out with those... Uh, Those commercials with the dogs and the cats, well, this is from the first track off um, her album. And, uh, God, I can't remember the name of the song off the top of my head. I'm not even that drunk yet. And um, so we, we paid for that. There's two references to Sarah McLachlan. Now you're watching the darkest darkest film you could ever see and um i apologize for this i am co-editor on this picture as a matter of fact and if i had a chance to go back today to edit this thing down i would probably take about 15 minutes out of it so just keep that in mind Uh, this is a tracking shot we did with it basically just a um a lovely uh wheelchair and you can tell because it's nice and rocky and stuff like that. This grocery store, I don't think is there anymore. This is in Sterling Heights. This is on um, 15 Mile, just east of Van Dyke, and, um, near Shaner, if you're a Detroiter. I'm going to make a lot of Detroit references in here. And the man that we're following is a guy by the name of Jason Brower. And Jason, I've lost contact with, I have to say. It's kind of sad. I was thinking about this. I used I made this film 17 years ago. We shot this in the fall of 1997 over 12 nights, uh, called in a lot of favors. And like Jason, um, a lot of the cast came out of a community theater, um, production that we did at Macomb community college. I had taken some, um, acting classes with my friend Dean who you'll meet in a minute and I'll tell you more about him. And, we were in a production of Stalag 17, in which um, I played one of the German guards. I played, actually, Schultz. And, nice. And so I had this German accent, and I learned how to, to do all this stuff. And we casted quite a bit out of uh, Stalag 17, because we became really good friends and close, as you do when you do a stage production or do a film or something like that. And uh, – coffin over there, Mike. Yeah going down the
0: road. Yeah, this, I, made this, uh, I made this drink kind of strong.
2: Hey, that's cool. So, um, and uh, as as you just noticed there, he's looking at the meat. We got the fangs. So there's your first notice as a vampire. So this guy... And so, the tainted meat. There you go. So you got this guy stalking another guy. Oh, Fago reference there. And... Um, So we we cast it basically out of this play, and then we put out a call and we got more people. Ronnie, who you're seeing walking towards you right now, he came in with uh, several other people in a casting call that we had. We got this grocery store for just one night and kind of shot everything out real quick. Uh, This is a joke that doesn't play at all with this guy. Um, He's carrying basically... What's funny is it's the sound of all these boxes falling, but that would make no sound at all because he was carrying, like, maxi pads in these uh, plastic uh, bags. You know what I'm talking about? Like those plastic kind of uh, boxes. Right. So they wouldn't uh-huh. have made any noise. So the, uh, the whole kind of uh, – I'll talk about this as you're watching this opening scene. The, the film came together. Uh, we were casted in Stalag 17 in 1996. It was in the spring of 96. And I was senior in high school, and that's where I met Sean Farley. And Sean, you'll meet later on, he wrote and put up the money for this. Now, his father had been, um, like, I think he was either fire chief or fire marshal of the city of Warren in Michigan. And he went on to end up actually having um, ALS, uh, Luke Gehrig's disease and um, Sean's father passed away. I only met him a few times. Um, when we were doing Style Like 17, he was, he was rather ill, and um, was home and bedridden. And then when he passed away, um, Sean and his brother Ryan, there were two brothers, and Ryan I'll talk about more later, um, were left an in inheritance, and Sean decided that one of the things that he wanted to do was to make a film. And Sean had been in some films before. He had done some some theater work because he was in Style Like Seventeen with me, but probably his um, the the role that when I met him in the '90s he was still getting royalty checks for, and they were rather small. They were, I, I remember one time it was like forty cents, and I asked him if he was going to cash it. Was uh, he was in. Not John Pace's crime wave. He was in Sam Raimi's crime wave. So um, those who don't know about Sam Raimi's crime wave, it was shot in Detroit in 83 or 84 and uh, Bruce Campbell's in it. It was co-written by the Coen brothers and it was a horrible experience and it was taken away basically from uh, the Coen brothers and Sam Raimi, who was the director. It was recut. They wouldn't let him cast Bruce Campbell in the lead and it was, they basically kind of disowned it. It's only just recently that it's been re-released.
0: And produced by our, our friend Ed Pressman.
2: Yeah. Who we will hear on the Bad Lieutenant episode. Yeah. So, um, so that was taken away. Actually, the music in the elevator here was written by the guy who did our score. So, um, we had him write two different pieces of elevator music, this and also the music that's in the grocery store. Um, so, um, So, okay, you got one guy stalking another guy here, and we'll just follow this out. But anyhow, so Sean was in Crime Wave, and what's funny is he's got a couple of lines. He's only like eight or nine years old when that film was made, and one of which includes him being thrown out of an elevator, I believe, by Brian James. And Brian James, of course, you know, Wake Up, Time to Die, um, Blade Runner, and multiple other films, sadly, uh, even... um, Uh, Cabin Boy, which we did on the show. And sadly, Brian James is no longer around. Great character actor. And in a way, this film allows Sean to have a connection in that way to Brian James because he's the one who gets to say wake up, it's time to die. And then that'll all make sense as we watch the film. So... um, yeah, this this opening is way too long. It's like six and a half minutes and we haven't even had one line of dialogue. So I guess that's risky and, and lovely and stuff like that. But as you can see, if, if I could cut this back, I would. This was sort of our ode to seven, to be quite honest. Trying to intercut our titles into an action sequence of some sort that would give you something. Um, we, well, let me just talk about my age. I was only 19 when I produced this thing. Uh, it was one year out of high school. And I had met Sean. Sean, I think, at the time, was 21, maybe 22. He's a couple years older than me. And then Brian, who directed it, was probably 26, maybe. And Sean and Brian worked together at Suncoast Video. Now, Suncoast is now long gone. It was a mall store. They worked together at the Macomb Mall, and it was a video store. You went in there, and you bought videotapes. Imagine that. And there's many things that are in this film that are related to their interactions with customers, and I'll explain that to you. As we get going um, into the video store sequence, but um, the film was, uh, like I said, shot over twelve days and was conceived by Sean because he wanted he wanted to do something with his, with his part of his inheritance. He had, you know, been um, I I don't know how you feel about this, but he was one of the um, I guess freelance uh, film reviewers for the Free Press or the news, I can't remember which, during the strike. So he is like 19, 20 years old, you know, and I guess didn't really care about labor, which is amazing when you live in Detroit. But um, he was writing film reviews for the the news and the free press, I believe. Uh, As for what you're looking at here, the whole film was shot in 16. We actually shot sync Sound. So, you'll actually, when you see dialogue, it'll be in sync. Um, We didn't do it all in post. We did some things in post. Um, But we tried to do as well as we could with 16mm. We had about 30 grand to shoot the film. And one of the people who isn't in the front credits, he's in the end credits, but is hugely influential in terms of, I would have to say, um, what I did on this and even my radio career, which came about three years, four years after I completed this film, is a man by the name of Jerry Frederick, and sadly, Jerry's no longer with us. He died maybe a year and a half, two years ago, I found out, and um, when I met him, he was already in his 60s, which was, um, I met him in 97, which is when we made this film, and Jerry was a grand old man of old school filmmaking. Um, He had a place on West Grand Boulevard in Detroit called Motion Picture Sound. And Motion Picture Sound was a place that did, um, sound mixing for mostly industrials and commercials. Some of the early people he worked with included, um, Jerry Bruckheimer. When Jerry Bruckheimer first started in film, he had the Cadillac account when he was in college. He's from Detroit, in case you didn't know. And, um, Jerry worked with him. Jerry also, back in the 50s, was one of the early pioneers in stereo recording. Uh, He had worked in Germany and in the States uh, on that. But probably the the coolest thing for us was that he was re-recording Master Mixer on both Evil Dead and Evil Dead 2. And he also worked on Crime Wave. uh, And one of the nicest things that Jerry ever said to us when we were putting the film together was you know you guys remind me of the renaissance guys meaning bob tappert and sam Raimi and bruce Campbell, and he said because you take what you he goes you take what you do seriously but you don't take it yourself seriously he goes and that's really the best way to do it so jerry by this time had retired and he was living in warren and he had a mini dubbing uh, theater in his basement. Now, if you want to know what a re-recording mixing stage sort of looks like, go watch targets, the Peter Bogdanovich film where he's sitting in the theater and he's watching this stuff and they're rolling the stuff back and forth, I think, because he's putting the film together. Um, kind of looks like that. It's basically a a big soundboard and they used to sync it to projectors. He had a 35 and a 16 millimeter projector. Plus he had all of this, um, uh, mag track you know uh, dubbers and everything in his basement it was wonderful so it was just like being a kid going there so he was the one who set me up with a nagra and sent me out with reel-to-reel tape and said this is how you record and, and that was originally what I was supposed to do I was supposed to come on to Tainted just to record dialogue and that was it and eventually I became a producer I became co-editor there was all of this stuff so this man you're looking at now is a good friend of mine by the name of Greg James He um, moved to L.A. and then just recently returned to Michigan. He's an actor. And um, he did a film called The Joint, which you might be able to see now. I think he wrote it and directed it. It's kind of a fun little film in a lot of ways kind of like this, which I think is kind of heavily inspired by clerks. Um, The Joint is a film about these two guys who uh, run a medical marijuana uh, dispensary in L.A. It's quite fun. And uh, I'm trying to remember who, who she is offhand. But, um, but, but as you can tell, um, it is a little soft if you're looking at it. I mean, it's probably really soft if you're looking at it on YouTube. The DVD transfer wasn't all that great. The 16 millimeter, when you looked at it, we actually projected it at our premiere. It was beautiful. I mean, just a really nice um, print. And everything. And I wish that we could clean it up and get it retransferred. but this film isn't worth about 35 cents, so therefore nobody cares. So there will be no Criterion Edition of this. This is all you get. So what do you think so far?
0: I'm enjoying it. I was glad to see your name come up in the credits. That was nice.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah my my credits are all over this thing. Um, I'm actually in it at one part, and gotta feel free to throw tomatoes at that part. I mean, and I'll explain how I ended up in this film, which I wasn't supposed to, to be quite honest. Um, so, um. Uh, so
0: you said you shot this over twelve nights. We
2: shot it over twelve nights, basically September, October of ninety-seven, and um, the that this is a house in Clinton Township. It actually, was a coworker of uh, Sean and Brian's. See, as you notice, like basically these shots go on way too long. Like we're going to sit here and wait for her to get dressed. No, we would have cut away already. So we were still learning how to how to even do this kind of stuff. You know? Yeah. The other thing, too, is we edited this old school. Um, in the credits, we called it the Red Carpet Den. That was because in Sean's house, he had red shag carpeting in this one bedroom. And we converted it into an editing suite. And we had all this stuff shipped in from California. We had a um, we had an upright moviola. We had a bench. We had a table. We had rewinds. We had a squawk box. We had a gang sink. We had... Um, you know, edit, like literal tape editing, a 16-millimeter film, and we did everything by hand. It was uh, myself and Brian, the director, and it was, just, it was just so much fun to do. I mean, this was really my film school. I've never made a nickel off this movie. I don't expect to make a nickel off this movie, but um, I learned everything. I learned how to make a film. I learned how to do sound. I learned how to mix. I learned how to promote everything. You know, on this thing, and uh, it was just a great experience. Watch Greg kind of laugh to himself right here. There you go. See. Anyway, see, see. You look at this footage too much. I mean, I haven't seen this thing in years, and I can still tell you where all things <laughs> are. So, I think Sean's dialogue is really good. I, I think as a writer, he was really good, and he had a lot of good ideas. But I think the problem is, is that we let stuff go on too long. You know.
0: Now, how did Brian get the gig as director?
2: Brian got the gig because Sean and Brian worked together at Suncoast, and Brian had also at one point. I think he's from Ohio. For some reason, he ended up in Detroit. I can't remember exactly, but he had gone out to California, and he had went to a place called I don't even know it's there anymore. It was like called Columbia College or something film school. Probably five years before this, so sometime in the early nineties. Because, like I said, Brian was, you know. Five to seven, maybe eight years older than I was, and I was nineteen when we did this. Um, and uh, so, so that's what it was. Like Sean bon didn't want to direct it. Sean wanted to act, and he wanted to write. And Sean didn't want to produce. (laughs) Like, as things went on, Sean was like, ah, I can't be bothered calling to try and get this location. I can't be bothered, you know, to, to figure out how we're going to get the camera. I can't, you know, like all this stuff was just like, why don't you do it? And it was like he kept asking me to do more stuff. And like I said, originally, I was just brought in to do sound. That was all I was supposed to do. I was just supposed to record dialogue on set, and that was it. Because I had no experience. I mean, I barely had any experience when it came to sound. I mean, the only reason why they gave me that was because I had an interest in music, and that was about it. And I had done some video production in high school, but nothing really that crazy. So, as you'll notice, you hear this bird in the background during this scene that just keeps going, "Eh, eh, eh, eh." and I can't remember (laughs) if that was because the window was open or because they actually had a pet bird in this house. (laughs) So... Now, you'll notice that part of his head kind of gets cut off here, and that's because you're probably watching this in 185, if you're watching it widescreen or maybe on YouTube. But this this movie was scaled to 16, so it's actually supposed to be at 18, uh, 137 Academy Aperture. Like, you know, basically old movies from the 40s, because Academy Aperture is that square aperture like Citizen Kane or you know movies like that so um, this is we, we shot a full frame 16 millimeter. we didn't even bother to look in look in the camera and figure out what TV safe was or what you know anything like that um, so this, this I think Greg does a pretty good job with a monologue like this I mean he's in one shot here for like it probably goes on for a good minute and a half where he's just talking about his guilt and how he feels about you know sex and women and all this stuff and, and like I said, remember this was written by a guy who was probably 22, maybe I think Sean was maybe three years older than me at the time. So, so he's talking about his own his own experience. I I really think that a lot of the male characters in here are all sort of funneled through Sean's uh, perspective of his own life at time.
0: I'm actually seeing a little bit more on the YouTube version than I am on my own TV. Yeah. Like that clock in the background or something. Yeah. The- that's going back and forth.
2: So Video Hound, we got to give a nod to Video Hound. Oh, actually, nice. ever since this movie came out, we have been the sample review in Video Hound since 1999, I think, edition of Video Hound. Kevin, I worked with Kevin, who's staring at you right now, with the I Drink Your Blood, I Eat Your Flesh t-shirt. Kevin worked with me at New Horizons Bookshop in Roseville, and um, his character is based on a guy that Sean had to deal with at Suncoast, who used to come in and ask for movies where people get tied up. So here's Sean. You're seeing him read the Metro Times or something. This is the old Thomas video in Clausen. They've moved, but this is the store. This is before I worked there, so... You said you worked at New Horizons I worked at New Horizons bookstore in um,
0: uh, is that the one on little Mac?
2: yeah yeah
0: okay I, uh, they used to carry cashiers there
2: yep so yeah. that's that's amazing magazine selection yeah they had about 4,000 monthly titles so sh- so uh, Kevin and I used to work there and like I said this is the old Thomas video and he used to like I said Sean who's behind the counter right now I have that cult picks and trash (laughs) cult hits and trash picks one. Yeah. Yeah. So he um, Sean had to deal with a guy like this at Suncoast. He would come in and he would wear out copies of movies where people were tied up. Like he didn't (laughs) want porn, which they didn't sell at Suncoast anyway. But he just wanted movies where people got tied up. This guy bought like ten or twelve copies of Reservoir Dogs in one year. (laughs) So I, I don't know what this guy's problem was, but he he would do this. So, so, um, so Kevin was a great guy. Uh, I think he's still around Detroit. Uh, he was a writer and just a really funny guy, really nice guy to work, work with when I was working at New Horizons. Christ, the their field trips for our store. Like I said, Sean's got some great lines. I mean, he just, he writes really well and, um, but like I said, this movie really owes a lot to two films because we we watched Clerks and said, well, if Kevin Smith can make that, we can do it in color and put vampires in it and make it more interesting. <laughs> and the other thing I would have to say that really inspired us was El Mariachi because we had seen El Mariachi, and then there was a book that Rodriguez did called um, – Rebel
0: Without a Crew.
2: Yeah, and he talked about how he did El Mariachi, and we were like, well – he actually had more against him than we did, and he had no you know he had like half the budget, if not less. We're like we should be able to do this, so that's how we went out and did this you know
0: oh, and thus thus the
2: wheelchair dolly yeah, the wheelchair dolly we we actually had a dolly built this is funny we we had a platform dolly built where we had sort of this um like cart. You know, sort of a wood platform, plank platform with a with a handle and everything, and these pneumatic tires. And we figured, okay, well, if they're pneumatic tires, we can take the air out a little bit, and it won't be as shaky. And we put the camera on tripod on it and kind of move it, but it was too wobbly. So we had to, like – we spent, like, $100 building this thing, and it was completely useless. We just got a wheelchair, and the wheelchair was much better, even though it is shaky at times. What about crabs? Did you use a – did you use a shaky cam at all while you were making this? No, we didn't use a shaky cam. We had handheld stuff, so we don't have any POV stuff, so we can't really get away with it. It just looks like bad filmmaking. That's the problem, you know, for me. There's one scene coming up, and if if you're drinking like I am right now, um, it may make you throw up. So I'm just warning you in advance. Okay, it takes a lot so to make me throw up. This right here, Sean's talking about Raising Arizona and the Raising Arizona test. You gave her the test. You showed her Raising Arizona. She didn't like it. You're going to find serious psychological flaws if you find a woman who doesn't like Raising Arizona. That is true. I honestly believe that's true. Never date a woman who doesn't like Raising Arizona. Sean wrote that. I read that. I laughed my ass off, and I know it to be true because Raising Arizona is brilliant. And if you're dating someone who doesn't like Raising Arizona, then you really need to reconsider your relationship with them. I'm just saying. (laughs)
0: <laughs> words of wisdom
2: hey we got Fargo, we got Wild Angels we got Platoon, we got CDs from Cinecide, now Cinecide you gotta look up do yourself a favor they are still going, they are the oldest uh, Detroit punk rock band uh, Jim and Gary who own Thomas Video they are in Cinecide and they were one of the original bands on the bookies scene and of course if you want to know more about bookies and all of that stuff just wait for um, my book on Orbit and Re called Reentry the Orbit Magazine Anthology, and we talk a lot about Cinecide and and all that stuff. And Jim and Gary are great guys. They let us come in here for one night, and we did all this, and um, they were just wonderful to us. um, And I've been a big supporter, and for a, a small time when they moved, well, actually it was at this location, I worked for them. I worked for them a few years after this. So I think it was 2000 to 2001 I worked at Thomas Video, so it was great.
0: Well, back when you were making this is probably around the time that I was coming in as a customer.
2: Yeah, it was, it was great. This
0: in fact, that was me that just walked in <laughs> right now.
2: So I'm going to give you a little tip of information here. This girl here, who, you, who you'll see in a minute, it was her house that was supposed to be Ryan's character's house. And her mother was the one who said, crabs, what about crabs? So she also worked at Suncoast. The guy on the other side of the aisle here, who they start to talk. Is Dean. Now notice she will pick up all the movies she picks up are vampire films. Hmm. So this is a little us being funny. So she picks up Nadia. She picks up, I think, um, The Hunger or something. I can't remember. So here we go. Here's another little tracking shot, a little shaky. So Dean here, let me tell you about Dean, who he's restocking the shelves. So there you go. Yeah. So. I didn't
0: see which one she picked up there.
2: Yeah, it's kind of hard to tell.
0: And that was the cult section behind her there, which was where I would go. I would just make a beeline
2: to it. <laughs> so, Dean here, who's being rude to the customer, I went to high school with him. A little bit of background on um, he's called Dean now. He's credited as Dusan, which is his uh, Slovak name. He came to America at age two with his folks. I went to high school with him. And, uh, really great guy. His name's um, his IMDB, I guess, is Dean Cechvala. And he was on the fifth season of True Blood. So he played, I believe, a character called Roy, I think, who was one of the werewolves in that season. Because wasn't it werewolves versus uh, vampires in that season of True Blood? Oh, I have no idea. Well, anyway, True Blood fans, there you go. He was That's his first role. He was in theater with me. Dean inspired me to go to Macomb Community College when I was in high school. We got a dispensation because our GPA was high enough. Here you go, Batman Robin sucks. Anyway, um, we got a dispensation to go to Macomb Community College, Dean and I, and we took night classes with adults in acting, and we took um, for, I think it was a year, a year and a half, maybe it was two or three semesters, and then we did community theater together. Dean eventually moved on to Chicago. He studied at the Steppenwolf and uh, did stuff there, and then he went to L.A., and that's where he lives now. He was on, recently, Masters of Sex. He had a part on there. He was on Numbers at one point. Um, he's done various um, various film roles here and there. A lot of TV. He seems to do a lot of TV. And uh, he's still looking for a role. So uh, don't judge him based on Tainted. This was 70 years <laughs> ago. The guy is a he's a talented actor, really great guy. And uh, if you're a casting director, look him up. His name's Dean Czechvala, And I think he may have changed uh, the spelling of his last name to a more phonetic spelling of his last name. Because he's... Huh. When, when I used to go to his house when I was a kid, this was a lot of fun. Was his folks um, spoke in him spoke fluent, fluent, um, fluent uh, Slovak among themselves. So they, um, so I would walk into the room and I'd be the only one you know, speaking English. I mean, they could speak English too, but heavily accented. And uh, I, I'll never forget Dean's dad saying to me, "What's the matter with you? Why don't you have a job? You're lazy," <laughs> you know. So that's just, you know immigrant parents. I mean, my mother's an immigrant too, but whatever. So this guy who's going through the laser discs, yes, laser disc kids, imagine such things, um, is a guy by the name of Ed Zemus. And he's done some film work as well. And I think he's still in the Detroit area. I owe Ed two things. He introduced me to, um, to tom waits and also uh leonard cohen like finding out who leonard cohen actually was i had heard leonard cohen and pump up the volume but i didn't know it was leonard cohen um ed was also in stalag 17 with us brilliant guy fucking phenomenal actor he's probably got he's probably the best actor in this fucking movie it's too bad that he only has like four minutes on screen in that and um you can't really do stuff, but he's always looking at stuff related to bananas and his character is called banana man. So he's looking at the bananas cover for Woody Allen. And that I think is, um, around the world in 80 ways or something, laser disc. And he's trying to hide it. And
0: oh, I, th- I thought it was an earnest film.
2: <laughs> and when he delivers this, this speech coming up to Dean, it made me want to fucking cry because he's supposed to be this schizophrenic guy who nobody gets, nobody understands him. And uh, and he's just so good at this. So I'm going to pour another here. Bananas. See, there's bananas again. So for some reason, uh, like I said, Sean had this thing with creating characters that would have a fixation of some sort. I think he has a thing with obsessions, which is fine. You know, it's good. It works really well. And like I said, Ed Ed does an amazing job of this.
0: So I noticed that the name of the production was uh, an Am I Right production? Am I Wrong, actually. Am I
2: Wrong, sorry. Yeah. Um, Where did that one come from? It was, I think it was a retort, like sort of Telling people it, it should have been in quotes, um, sort of like saying, um, you know, like Walter in uh, Big Lebowski, da 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 da. da you know, you came and they pissed on your rug, and he, you deserve to get paid for that. You know, am I wrong? Am I wrong? You know, kind of that kind of you know getting someone to agree with you as a retort kind of thing. Um, there's there's actually an, a last credit, and I'll explain this last credit towards uh, when we get there. That is also a retort it's actually a response that someone gave to us one day, but um but Ed like I said, God, just just watch that scene don't you know, he just does a great job, so Dean is a little bit pale now he is a little bit pale at this time anyway, but we made him a little bit pale, so if he looks a little pale you he, he's supposed to be so so. By
0: the way, I was glad to see a Running Time poster.
2: Yes, yes, Running Time. Uh, I love Running Time. If you haven't seen Running Time, if you don't know what we're talking about, it's in the back in the cult cave. It may be by the front door of the video store. And it's a film by, is it Josh Becker?
0: Yes, it is. Yeah, it's
2: Josh Becker, who was part of the um, sort of the Renaissance crew. He came in, I think, on Evil Dead 2. And Running Time is amazing because kind of like Rope, it is in real time. And it's kind of this black-and-white heist film from what I remember. I haven't seen it in 10 years probably. And Bruce Campbell's in it. And if you haven't seen it, do yourself a favor and check it out. Go go find Running Time and watch it. You'll love it.
0: Yeah, there's this whole – you know how I always am looking at those stupid uh, online lists – uh-huh. And they had one that was uh, greatest uh, long shots in film, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And they, you know, children of men and hard-boiled and all this. And one of them was uh, Rope. And I was like, uh, you guys should really check out Running Time, too. and Because I don't think too many people know about it. But it's no. a great film, and they tried to hide all the cuts.
2: Okay, so the video store. Okay, in case you aren't listening to what's actually going on in the film. These guys want to go to a midnight screening of Blade Runner, and this is when Blade Runner was being re-released. So instead of talking about Star Wars like they do in Clerks, we talk about Blade Runner. So (laughs) they are going to go to this midnight screening. They're going to show the original version, the director's cut. Of course, this is before the final cut, which is my preferred version. Go Go listen to the Blade Runner episode. And they have tickets. They don't have a car. Dean's character has a car. Alex so they're all going to go together and they're going to drive there so they go from Clausen you just saw a shot of downtown Mount Clemens we are now we hooked the car up to a dolly and we towed it around the circle at Lakeside Mall out (laughs) out in um, Sterling Heights the one thing that bothers me about this fucking scene is that rear view mirror that cuts off Sean's head and eventually cut off part of his face you won't even be able to see it That rearview mirror should have been ripped out of the car because as you'll notice in a lot of films where they show this through-the-window kind of look, you don't see the rearview mirror. They get rid of it, but you don't happen to notice that because you're engaged in the acting. You're engaged in what they're saying. As for how this was recorded, the sound was recorded by – I taped my mic to the um, uh, the gear shift and then – uh, we were trying to figure out how we were going to light this, and we had a uh, we had bought one of those um, plug-in cigarette lighter converters, and we were going to actually light it through the window from the back of the tow car. But the problem was is that we couldn't do that because it kept blowing out the fuse in the power converter. So what we did was we went to uh, I think Meyer or something, and we got a Coleman uh, lantern, like uh, it looked more like a big flashlight. And then we put some paper on the roof of the car, and we bounced the light from basically underneath the, the radio up onto the ceiling. And we figured, well, that seems about right it, You know, in terms of lighting. It'll, it'll get their faces. It'll seem like it's the control panel or whatever that's lighting their faces, and it won't be that weird. So it worked out pretty well. The only problem is is the difference between – you'll see in a minute here. It's really dark behind them, but the car breaks down, and they pull off to the side of the road, and they're on this really bright street. So so it doesn't really work <laughs> in that way. If you're going to be, you know, looking for continuity errors. This is so they're at Lakeside Mall in Sterling Heights. Now they're about six miles away in downtown Mount Clemens. <laughs> so so here we are. And you'll notice that I didn't I didn't end up shooting sync sound here, but you'll hear the sound effect of them popping the hood, which I don't know why I didn't shoot sync sound when they got out of the car I should have. Here's your pulp fiction shot. Nice it's the hood. Do you know anything about cars? Can you fuck a car? Do you want to know anything about cars? Exactly. That's fucking brilliant. Like I said, Sean's dialogue is hilarious. You know? It's just he does a really nice job (laughs) writing for these characters. You know? So I think we're coming up on the really bad shaky shot. And I'll explain to you how this really bad shaky shot happened. So, okay, they're walking off, and they're still walking through downtown. Oh, my God, it's me. I forgot. Wow. So this is me circa 1997. I was probably 320, 330. I was almost at my complete heaviest. When I went to canon 99, I was 335 pounds. And uh, I was 19 years old. And uh, not a very happy man at the time. As you can see, we're in Detroit. No, please, no Canadian change, goddammit. That's right, exactly. Because in Detroit, we get so much Canadian change. Um, so this was a gas station. It's no longer a gas station. It's on uh, Grossbeck and 696. So this is now in uh, on the Roseville, East Point, East Detroit border, whatever you want to call it. Um, they let us borrow this for the night. And this guy... I wasn't supposed to be in this film. There was supposed to be a redneck guy who was an uh, uncle of a girlfriend of somebody related to the crew who was supposed to come in here, and he was supposed to do this part. He was only supposed to have a couple of lines of dialogue. This guy was supposed to be like 6'5", five, 500 pounds, big fucking massive mountain of a dude, and he totally bailed on us. And I had decided to fill in, and I didn't want to do it. And as you'll notice, my accent kind of changes.
0: You're like Kevin Costner.
2: In Robin Hood he's just doing his job, man, so so he starts going off on me and is upset that I can't help him, you know, with anything, which is funny. I'm supposed to have locked up the store, but yet the gates are still open, the lights are still on, whatever <laughs> so um and then there's this whole thing with him and the bird, and you know, I don't know if you know this or not, but birds do not fly at night, but anyway, that doesn't mean. So you hear me kind of slip into this redneck accent, which is terrible. Now, if you were watching a minute before where I'm actually in the ghetto glass cage, I tell this joke. Well, don't laugh at it because it's not even a joke. It's not supposed to be funny. And I ask Sean about that. I go, why don't you give me something that's actually funny? And he goes, no, there's no point in that. And I go, okay. He goes, I want to give people something that they'll be confused about. I'm like, okay, all right. So we did that by standing on a ladder and then pouring lotion on Sean's shoulder. So...
0: It could be bat
2: poop. <laughs> yeah, but you hear a bird chirp.
0: It could be guano. <laughs> I didn't. I, I. I knew that you were a ginger, but I guess I didn't know. How come <laughs> I don't make more jokes about you not having a soul?
2: Well, I am soulless. You know. Yeah. I, I do have rhythm. I can play the funk on guitar and bass, but yeah, I am pretty soulless, though. So, you know.
0: Like Don Simmons. <laughs>
2: Hi, I'm Nud. Uh, hi, I'm BB King.
0: <laughs> I even met David Hartman once. What a, what a, neat, what a guy. neat
2: guy! <laughs> I'm BB King. These unfortunate souls, please give to brothers without soul. So, okay, as I said, there we're now in like Roseville, East Point border area. Actually, over by where my family like, has lived for like a hundred years, except for me, I finally moved out. So here's the shakiest shot in the world, so he Greg gives this really great monologue about how great Harrison Ford is now. the reason why this is so shaky was we couldn't use the um the wheelchair because there was no one to pull the wheelchair, so it was just those three guys which you don't really see uh Dean off to the off to the right, Brian and myself so brian's hand holding a sixteen millimeter camera he tried to walk it by himself and he got so like pushed off to the side, this is downtown Mount Clemens, that it ended up it ended up being unusable. We had to shoot this a couple of times. So what I had to do as the sound man was to basically like stand next to him with the boom mic and kind of guide him backwards as straight as I could. And because of that, this dialogue track, and I don't think you're going to hear the pops in it, but this dialogue track was almost unusable. Because every time Brian would walk next to me, he would... He would slam up against me, and when he would slam up against me, he would put these pops onto the onto the tape, onto the you know, because it would rattle the mic, and um, and we had to, I had to physically go in. (laughs) <laughs> with with a uh with with the editing, you know, like I, I took my uh reel to reel, I gave it to Jerry, Jerry converts it to Magtrack, sixteen millimeter, and then I had to go in and take all the pops out and then put frame by frame all those little pops. I had to replace them with clean mag track. I had to replace oh. it with clean magnetic tape. Now I'm talking like twenty thirty pops in this this shot that just goes on for god like I don't know like Two minutes and um and then we had to put jerry's like if i put enough city sound behind it and all this other stuff then we should be okay like people are not going to hear the dialogue pops and luckily he saved it but the problem is is that the shot is so damn shaky i wish it was a little more stable than it is but we didn't have steady cam. we couldn't afford it and we didn't have any like i said we didn't even want to help us that day so this is downtown Mount Clemens. This is right by the clock tower. This guy who's waving, his name is Benny Sorrentino. He was also in Style Lake 17 with us. The other guy is a friend of Sean's he went to high school with. Benny was in a film, and I can't find it. Maybe you can find it on a torrent site that was shot in the 90s called The Killing Tide. And supposedly the director of The Killing Tide, who got who came to town, he shot in Mount Clemens, and it was this big deal because he was shooting this movie. This is in the 90s, you know, when it was like – cool. It was like, wow, somebody's shooting something in Michigan, you know, especially around Detroit. Um, Supposedly this guy, I can't remember his first name, but his last name was Dubay, and I don't think he used that as his real directing name for other stuff that he'd done, but supposedly he had shot some of those uh, Tracy Lord's films where she was underage. Hmm. So um, I haven't seen The Killing Tide since its premiere, but Benny was in it, and from what I remember, it was this little action film, and it had its moments, but it was pretty corny. So Benny was also our stunt coordinator, so whenever we needed anything that was related to fighting or anything, th- th- we did that. So this is the big reveal of Dean's character, Alex as a vampire. You know, he feels like he's going to be threatened by these guys, so he takes down both the thugs and saves the day. Like I said, that shot was too long; should have been cut. So, so in and case then,
0: you remember from the beginning when the guy had the fangs,
2: yeah. So okay but but the thing is with dean's character and we did this for a reason is dean doesn't have fangs dean's character does not have fangs and the reason why he doesn't have fangs and this is later on in the film is that he really doesn't want to be a vampire this and you'll notice this really soft like he's kind of out of focus even in 16 he's really out of focus um alex doesn't want to be a vampire his thing is is that he fucking hates being a vampire he became a vampire and it wasn't his choice he was turned by this other guy and he has this dialogue with him later and i'll you'll see that and we'll talk about that later but supposedly he files his fangs down and part of the reason why we did that as his character was those teeth that we have and i think um they used the same teeth in um Jesus Christ Vampire Hunter which we'll be talking about on the on the show um they're really good teeth, and <laughs> we bought, like, five or six pairs of them so that we could have them for the people who were vampires. And um, he – you can't really talk with them in. They're kind of right. hard to talk. So the idea was is that if Dean's character was going to be a vampire, he was going to be a vampire with no fangs. Like, he had done something to himself to keep himself from having fangs. So that was, that. was that was the idea behind that. So, okay. So they run off downtown Mount Clemens and now we are in Warren and we're walking up to, um, that's
0: a really long walk.
2: Yeah. It's amazing. So if if you have a map, you can figure this out. Um, how many goddamn vampires are there? You'd never sleep if you knew. I love that dialogue. So this house is about four doors, four doors down from Sean's house where he was living at the time with his folks, actually his mother, because his father had passed away. And this is actually the house of the stock boy in the grocery store. So this, we used his family's house in order to shoot all of the stuff related to Tina's character. Uh, Her name's Tina Kapusa. She's also out in L.A. She's doing some great stuff. And this is our second Sarah McLaughlin reference. Her name is Adia. So Adia being from the song on um, Not Fumbling Toward Its Ecstasy... The um God I can't remember the fucking title of the album. Anyway, whatever. So that's your second Sarah McLaughlin reference. So the idea also in this film is that vampires like all of us, not to compare it to the Watchmen with superheroes, but vampires like all of us have the same fucking bullshit that anybody else has. You got bad relationships, you got bad jobs, you just happen to be a vampire. So there you go. So Alex and Adia used to be together. They were together for about maybe a hundred years and uh, they just broke up recently and they're not very happy. So the only reason why he's ending up here is because he's trying to get his car fixed. And, um, she's like, whatever, she's got a new boyfriend and she's going to help him out, but whatever.
0: So now the guy that directed this, Brian,
2: well, actually, actually you- let me tell you something on this. I didn't bring my Anne Rice Dakota ring. That line was my addition to the script. Now, let me tell you why that was added to the script. I had told a friend of mine that we were making this vampire film, and I explained what it was. And she had read so many Anne Rice novels. She goes, well, that's not how vampires are. And I go, well, excuse <laughs> me. I didn't bring my Anne Rice secret decoder ring. So Sean wrote that into the script because he thought it was so good. Anyway, go nice. ahead.
0: Now, he directed Tainted in 98. We've got listed in IMDb. Yeah. And then another film called After April. Yes. Is he the same guy? Because you know, IMDb is always so accurate. Did he go on to be like a a assistant accountant
2: on films? I'm not sure if he did or not. I wouldn't. I wouldn't doubt that he did. I wouldn't doubt that he went back to L.A. because Suncoast closed, and there was nothing really here for him in Detroit. And he went and worked in some capacity in the film industry in L.A. I haven't talked to Brian since probably 2000 or 2001 uh speaking of after april i was hired in to work on after april with sean sean was producing it i was producing it there were several members of this cast who were in after april it was written by sean's brother ryan and uh i got in an argument with ryan and ryan fired me off the film i'm still credited on imdb although i do not believe my name is actually in the credits and i have never seen after april and as far as i know it's never been distributed uh, the thing that's interesting about Ryan, though, is that Ryan has gone on to be a TV writer in his own right. He uh, went to college and did a couple – I think he did some story help on some some shows. You can find it on IMDb. But he was interviewed recently, even though the show isn't continuing into a second season. He was one of the writers on Low Winter Sun, which came and shot in Detroit a few years ago. um, maybe just last year, actually, for, um, uh, was it AMC that did Low Witches? I think it was, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, there was a whole write-up in the paper about Ryan and everything. But as far as I know, After April has never been released, and I've never seen it.
0: Are you sure it wasn't released as May?
2: I don't know. I've never seen it. So, if anyone can find it and send me a link to it, I'd love to see it. I'd never seen it, though. That was my bad joke, Rob. Yeah, I get it. There you go. Mm -hmm. So, so I, I like this. I don't know if it's so evident, but she's, she's an alcoholic. She's become an alcoholic. And not only that, but um, she, uh, she watches sunsets and sunrises and the sun on TV. Because she's so tortured by being a vampire. You'll see it in a minute. But I don't know if people understand that this intercut between her watching TV, looking at us, and then we see these sort of grainy TV images because we don't actually see the TV set. I think we just see the screen. So I don't know if people understand that that's really what that is. She's looking at at videotaped son because she's sort of depressed about being a vampire. So those two get along really well in terms of Adia and Alex because they both don't want to be vampires. <laughs> so, so here we are driving down Sean Street, and now we're back on the circle at Lakeside Mall in Sterling Heights. She made Cage and leaving Las Vegas look like a, a key, you know, look like he would be a key candidate for rehab. So this is where, okay, the. First car scene is all about them sort of, oh hey, how you doing this, how you doing that, you know, and there's some sort of inkling that something's different about Alex. But here we get to understand exactly how old he is, you know. So we get the feeling that maybe um he was uh there's this whole thing about Vietnam. He was a Vietnam veteran, so maybe he was turned you know, after Vietnam, or maybe he was turned and then went to Vietnam. I don't know, but whatever. I mean, it can be kind of hard to fight in Vietnam and be a vampire. I guess you know, especially if with the whole sun making it explode kind of thing, which we still go along with in this film.
0: Well, and you said that they had been together for a hundred years. So
2: yeah, you kind of get the feeling they've been together for you know longer than most couples. <laughs> okay, so so how you doing over there? Was how's the drinking?
0: I need to need to get a refill here. Let me uh, see about unplugging parts of this machine so I can walk around
2: with it. Want to pause it real quick?
0: Uh, yeah, we can do that. Yeah,
2: I paused it. All right, I'm back. So my counter says 5923, or
0: 4923. Mine says 49. I don't have seconds on
2: this thing. Okay, that's fine. So you ready to roll again? Yep. So, was there something you were asking me about this at this point, or do you want me to just kind of freestyle? Yeah, just freestyle. I was,
0: I was good. Oh, I was asking about your director and ap- after April and stuff, but I was yeah. done with
2: that one. You know, one of the things that's really interesting about this film is that um, out of all the trauma films. We actually got pretty good reviews. I mean, I understand that there are technical things. Like right now you're looking at this and you're seeing fog on the on the uh, window there. And that's because, like I said, this was shot in September and October in Michigan. And it's kind of cold at night. I mean, it's like 30, 40 degrees. And there's no heat on the car. The car's not running. And they're breathing. So, of course, the windows are going to steam up a little bit. But, you know, the one thing I was really impressed with in terms of, Once we premiered this thing, and we got it picked up by Troma was the fact that the reviews were really were actually pretty good. If you go on Amazon.com and you look at the reviews for the Triple B Header DVD, which we're watching right now, uh, they say you know the other two films aren't very good, but. You know, tainted's the reason why I can't give this zero or one star. You know, it's like, they're like, it's actually engaging. Like, the dialogue is good. Like, the acting is good. It's it's a pretty good film. Like I said, it does have some technical deficiencies. I mean, I understand that. I mean, and I was the producer of it, I directed it. I'm kind of responsible for that. But then again, at the same time, I had done basically nothing. (laughs) I was 19, you know. Uh, Brian had never directed anything. I think maybe he had done a small short film when he was out at film school in L.A. Uh, Sean had been an actor in things, but he had never actually completed a film. Nobody else in the film had any film experience in any way. And this was at the time, really, when you had to do things on film. I mean, we did everything on 16 millimeter, you know, so... It's, um, you know, it, it is what it is, and and like I said, I'm very, I'm very proud of it because of what I learned and what I was able to take away from it. Uh, I don't know if it's entertaining. I, I have no idea. Um, I think. Well, you can't judge that. I mean, you're so close to it. No, I mean, I, I, I know what it means to me. I, I know what it did for me. I'm forever grateful for the opportunity to have had it. But in terms of of what it is. I, I can't tell you, you know um, you know, I had people who came to every single one of my screenings when we did screenings in, in 2000 and in, uh, 97 and early 98 and were just, they loved it. They Absolutely loved it. And one of the greatest pieces of advice that I ever got was from another filmmaker from Detroit and his name is Robert Dyke. And I worked on his film for about one day. And I talked about this on the executive action episode a film called Nobody Knows, and I worked with Robert Dyke for one day on uh, that film, but I got to know him pretty well before that, actually, because of this film. And he said to me that a friend of his took him, he had done a film called Moontrap, which features um, Walter Koenig, who's uh, Chekhov from Star Trek, and Bruce Campbell back in the 80s. And he said a friend of his took him to Blockbuster one day because he was feeling low, and he put his arm on his shoulder around him and said, you see all these movies on the shelf? every single one of these movies is somebody's favorite film. So he goes, whenever you get upset, whenever you feel that your work is worth anything, he goes, just remember that there's somebody out there that one of these films is somebody's favorite film, you know? And, and and I think about that and it's true. I'm sure that there's somebody who's seen tainted and goes, Oh my God, this is, this is amazing. I love it. Um, Maybe it's inspired them to go do something. That would be great. I I would love that, but I, I have no idea. So I, I have no idea what um, you know what they've done. So that was the big reveal right there, that now Adia, who is Alex's girlfriend, is now dating the killer from the first part of the film, who's also a vampire. So his name's Slain. That's Jason Brower, amazing actor. He does almost a silent portrayal. He doesn't really talk all that much in this film. So that's supposed to be the big reveal. So from the first scene to now, there's your big reveal. And they borrowed his car and they find out why he was bleeding all the vampires. And that is why it's called Tainted because he was bleeding all the vampires. Well, why is he bleeding all the vampires? I'm not going to ruin it for you, Mike. Just keep watching.
0: All right. <laughs> so, Andrea had a question. Yeah. And it was was the guy in the back of the car mocking the driver? Yes. Not the driver. Oh, the guy who was telling the story. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah,
2: Sean's character JT basically is a mocker. He he's a very angry young man, and he just makes fun of everybody, which really isn't too far from Sean's personality at that time. <laughs> you know, he just really like like Sean was uh, kind of a malcontent. I mean, uh, he was he was one of one of my best friends for a long time. I haven't seen him in years. The last time I saw him. Um, Actually, when we came back from Cannes, we worked together at the Main Art Theater. And then Sean went off to manage, I think, the Maple, and then he managed another theater in Detroit. And I kind of lost track of him there. But the thing that's funny is he did another film which I can't remember if he shot it on video or if he shot it on film, called Surviving the Rush. And this was 2007, maybe, if you look on IMDb. And the guy who's the lead in Surviving the Rush is the lead in Deadheads, which we're going to be talking about in a couple of weeks. So Mike McKitty, who's in both of those films. So um, Michigan connection there. And since then, I have no idea what happened to Sean. Sean and I kind of had a had a hard relationship after things separated on after April. Although we did have another project that we were trying to complete, uh, before after April, um, which was Sean's brother's film, because he saw that we had done well with tainted. We had got it distributed. We had got it out on, at that time, VHS in 2008. And Sean's brother decided that he wanted to get into filmmaking and use some of his inheritance as well, to do so. And, um, it just didn't, uh, it just didn't happen. Um, in that way. We had another project, which was a higher-budget-stuck-in-the-house film, as we called it, <laughs> much like much like Evil Dead and stuff like that. And the film, I think, was called Hungry, and was this uh, character who was sort of stalking this house and wouldn't let the people get out. And for a short time, we had talked to Penn Gillette because Penn was kind enough to give us a quote for this film. I had met Penn Gillette at a uh, Penn & Teller... Uh, They were on tour, and I gave him a copy of Tainted on on VHS at the time. He watched it. He emailed me back, which was fucking amazing to me. And uh, he's like, I watched your movie. I really enjoyed it. It was a lot of fun. Thanks a lot. And I said, uh, can I use that as a quote? He said, sure. (laughs) And then I started talking to him and his management about trying to get him to play the uncle character in this film called Hungry. Which never happened. There was a guy who, after Tainted happened, took Sean and I out to dinner and picked us up in a limo and all this stuff. He (laughs) was like, we're going to make movies together. It's going to be fucking great and all this stuff. And um, he's like, I got people. who got money and all this stuff. And he was older. He was probably like in his 50s. And uh, so we believed him because he was older. And we were 20. (laughs) And um, he's like, What do you got? Let me see your script. And we show him the script and all this, and it just didn't happen. So um, I really want to, like in this scene right here, I really want to give a nod to Jesse, a guy by the name of Jesse McClear, who was in a band at the time called Heavy Water Factory, based out of Detroit. And they were an industrial band, um, you know, very influenced at the time by uh, something like um, Nine Inch Nails which, of course, Nine Inch Nails had made a lot of notice after uh, Broken and uh, Downward Spiral in 1994. So a lot of the music that you'll notice in Tainted is industrial-flavored, and that is because we asked Jesse to do our score for us. I think we gave him something for it, but I can't remember exactly. And uh, Heavy Water Factory did some great stuff. They were on this label label called Energy Records which was based out of New York and they also had another Detroit act by the name of Speedball although they're not featured in our film um, but he did all the score except for the needle drops that we pulled from various albums which were Brian who was our um, director was a big fan at the time of industrial film or not industrial film, industrial music and he liked things such as um, there was a band called Diatribe There's a band called Diwarzu. Um, there was a band called Idiot Stare and um, so we got all these like um, sort of small label industrial bands to come on and including a band by the name Battery which was on a label at the time called Cop International which I don't even think is around anymore and Battery was was a great little three piece industrial act and they wrote a song for us which is our end credits theme and, and it's a, a great little tune uh, I don't even think they even see. The, I don't think they even saw the film uh, to write the song. I think we sent them the script, and um, Maria, who was the singer, wrote all the lyrics. And I think I still have the original lyric sheet to that. And it was just it was great to have that because there, you know, it was just some great people doing uh, phenomenal work, and it was just kind of kind of fun to have that. This right here, you can't really tell this shot with him behind him. There was a um, a focus pull, which we're really proud of, which you saw uh, when it was <laughs> projected in the theater. Which... <laughs> I actually noticed that? I was like,
0: "Ooh, that's focus, focus
2: pull." That's like one of the best, like, simple in camera tricks you can do, and it was so great. And um, and and you just heard his whole sort of reasoning right there. So is um you know slain who's Brian uh, not Brian. Um, Jason's character, he he also hates being a vampire. And the reason why he's bleeding all the vampires is he wants to turn everybody into vampires. This is what has to happen. What happened to me has to happen to others. So really, the whole idea of where this comes from actually is not really vampires. Um, Shauna told me that the concept for Tainted actually came out of AIDS. Where um just the idea of someone who might have AIDS, who... um I think it was like – wasn't there a PSA? Do you remember this PSA, Mike, where there was a whole thing where there was um, somebody slept with somebody and then they wake up in the morning and then they look in the mirror and it says, welcome to AIDS on the mirror and like lipstick. Do you remember this? It was more of a
0: – that one to me was more of an urban legend one.
2: Yeah. So yeah. it was that idea of the urban legend that led to this film. So the idea of Tainted, of turning people into vampires, came from this idea of you have AIDS and that you're miserable and you hate it and you want to make everyone else have AIDS so that they'll understand right. your pain. Which, to me, I totally understood in 1997. And, I, and this is something that those who know me on the personal level would, would know. is One of my best friends, I met him when I was in the third grade, died when he was 16. His name was Keith. And Keith is still with me in a lot of ways. He is what I call my guilt trigger. And what I mean by that is, is when I'm not living life to the fullest, when I feel depressed, when I feel upset with myself... Keith comes into my head and says, fuck you. (laughs) And Keith died when he was 16. I think I was 17. And he had contracted HIV through blood transfusion or clotting factor. We don't know which, when he was about five. Oh, that's rough, man. And there is a documentary you can see online, and I believe it's on Netflix Instant, right now called bad blood and if you want to know about this you can watch that and you'll completely understand what I'm talking about in relation to hemophiliacs and that they received HIV through blood transfusions or clotting factor mostly through clotting factor and the government and the uh, pharmaceutical industry conspired to not tell them that they were using contaminated factor (laughs) it's a fucking sin and it still pisses me off to this day because that man and I say man because he was 16 he had more will and spite and energy in his life. He wanted to go live and he fucking died for no reason. And his mother lost both her sons. She lost Keith and she lost Curtis. Curtis was 21. Keith was 16 and they both fucking died. and They didn't have to die. And so when I read this script, I understood what that was. I right? That I, it fucking resonated with me. So um, uh, go see Bad Blood. Do yourself a favor, see it. Um, so when I read this, I, I understood exactly what this was. This painting here is my friend Chris Urbanski did this painting. He was a phenomenal artist. He still is a phenomenal artist. I have one of his paintings on my wall behind me as I'm watching this. Um, um, and it... It, that was where the idea came from. That is where uh, Sean got this idea was was related to AIDS. And of course, in 1997, AIDS was still top of mind. I mean, we were kids who grew up with Ryan White. We were kids who grew up with with understanding what that was in terms of the paranoia that was in the media and the late AIDS. Right. Back when people thought you'd get it from a
0: sneeze or an open <laughs> yeah. mouth kiss or a toilet or, yeah. seat
2: or sharing a glass with someone. Right. You know. So. Uh, there's some dated references in this scene. There's this. Uh, Sean walks into the into the room, and there's um, sheet music all over the floor, and he says, "Paging David Healthcott." Do you know who David Healthcott was? Ooh no, that's even too much for me. <laughs> this we made this movie right around the time that the film Shine happened. Do you remember Shine? Oh yeah, I remember that With one. Jeffrey Rush is David Healthcott, the uh, the guy who was I think he was Aspergers, but he was a m- classical pianist. So it was sort of like, I guess, a beautiful mind, you know? Right. So so there are references in this film that are completely dated. It's 17 years ago. There's stuff that you're not going to get. There's stuff that you'd have to go look up. There's stuff that doesn't make any sense anymore. So this was a note that I had made to myself before I did this commentary is, to you kids who want to make films, do yourself a favor And don't make dated references if you can. Um, Reference things that are classic. Reference things that will be around for a long time. You know, because um, otherwise, people twenty years from now like this uh, will watch it and they won't understand what the fuck you're talking about. (laughs)
0: And they'll go, huh? So happens to me occasionally on MST3K. But
2: (laughs) (laughs) well, I'm two in. I'm going for third now.
0: Well, I'm just starting my second. I'm <laughs> drinking uh, gin, tonic, and a little bit of lime juice. I'm just, so
2: I'm just drinking straight, uh, basically bourbon. I, wow. I interviewed the guy who um, makes this stuff. It's actually a Colorado product. It's called Tin Cup Whiskey. It's very smooth. Hey, Named
0: after the Kevin Costner film?
2: <laughs> you know, that's funny, uh, because I, I thought about Ron Shelton films, and Ron Shelton actually does a pretty good job. But um, – Tin cup uh, whiskey. You can check it out. And I did a little video for uh, that first story we did. All these people who are listed on this thing that Dean is reading off are all high school friends of Sean. So anyway, there was a little inside reference to his little nod to his friends. There's a lot
0: of... And I'm sure when you watch this at the premiere that the audience just
2: roared, right? <laughs> <I wanna> th- <laughs> the premiere was amazing. We had the premiere at the Star John R. Theater. Oh, nice. um in, uh, where is that? Is it it's Madison uh, Madison yeah. And we did a tie-in with, I believe it was ALS, because obviously Sean's father had passed away from ALS. So mm-hmm. we charged $5 a ticket. We had to hire a guy to come in and project 16-millimeter. And um, so here, the, you won't see that anymore. General Motors fucking sign on top of the old yeah. building. That doesn't exist. I went around and shot this myself at like 3 in the morning just to get – these shots of Detroit the Fox theater and Trump.
0: the GM building. That's where Andrea's working now. Yeah.
2: It's called Cadillac place and it's a beautiful yep. building Albert Kahn. And, um, so, uh, real quick this guy here who plays the door guard his name is michael agruso and he was also in solid 17 with us and if you go on youtube he has a thing where he does this thing with uh characters little uh uh plastic figures called dc versus marvel or marvel versus dc i can't quite remember i believe that mike lives in la and he's an actor and a voice actor uh really amazing guy really just amazing impressionist even like 17 years ago. I mean, he was just fucking amazing. It's too bad we don't really see his face all that well, because like I said, this transfer is pretty shitty. But, um, where we're going into now is Leland city club, which is still there. <laughs> and nice. Those who know the city club, know what the city club is. Oh, yeah. yeah, an after hours bar. It used to be open until about four or five in the morning in Detroit. And it was also goth bar. So when we were looking for stuff related to vampires, we were like, where do we go? Like, where can we find stuff that would be vampire-ish, where it would be a club of vampires hanging out? And we were like, someone said, go to the City Club. So we went to the City Club, and they let us use the place. And this is, I don't know if they've changed it, but this is what it looked like in 1997. And I love this line that Sean has. My God. It's that, Stoker's Cheers. Oh. I love that line.
0: That, that's pretty much how I felt <laughs> when I would go to City Club.
2: So... So we got a lot of City Club regulars to just show up, dress as themselves, and drink red drinks so they look like they were drinking blood. And um, there's a little visual joke, which I don't know if you're going to see here. Uh, the guy who was the cleaning man, we tied him up against the wall here in the background. He's tied to the back with a chain but you can't really see it and then that was shot like somewhere else the guy behind the bar is the man that we owe this all to his name is Tony Lucci he used to teach acting at Troy High School and he was our director for Stalag 17 so he's the one who brought all of us together his family is Swiss so because his family is Swiss Swiss, and Switzerland is really sort of has three different languages it has German Italian and French Tony's family was, I guess, I believe the German side of Switzerland, and he was the one who taught me how to speak with this German accent, so that I could do Schultz and I could do, oh yes, you know, it's very much, you know, I'm from Cleveland and all this, and I could do all this sort of German accent for him, and uh, it was lovely. Like uh, Tony's just a great guy. I don't know what happened to him, but he was also, um, I believe, he was a Screen Actors Guild member in Detroit at the time, which was kind of rare back in the late '90s, and he would do. Um, commercials and various things and he's probably the best actor we have in this whole thing although he only has like two minutes of screen time but he's really a great guy Um, also you'll notice on the bar and I don't know if you'll notice this uh, because we didn't really shoot close-ups of it is that um, the sort of uh, caddies for uh, drinks and various things at the bar are these crosses, and the crosses are studded with uh, rings of garlic, and then they have sort of these um, uh, cocktail stirrers kind of hang off them. <laughs> so we just we made these in my uh, garage, and uh, just thought they would be kind of funny to have as as background stuff. So,
0: so what were you talking about? The cleaning man.
2: Oh, the cleaning man's in the background in that one shot. Is as they go through the bar, there's this sort of wheelchair shot, as we talked about. And he's tied up in the background. He's got a white shirt on. He's a black guy. And uh, he was the cleaning man at the city club. And we asked him if we could just make it look like he's being held hostage there or something. So we just tied him up to the wall. Can't really see him because, like I said, this transfer is really dark. It's really contrasty transfer. I wish it was a better transfer. But I think this was actually the transfer that we got from Toronto. See, one of the great things about living in Detroit at the time, and this was pre-9-11, where you didn't really have to worry about passports and all that nonsense in order to get across the border, uh, the preclearance, was that um, also Canada had a great exchange rate. And at the time when we maintained it, it was about 40%. So what we decided to do is we printed all of our stuff in Detroit, and then we took all of our negative, and we had to drive to Chicago to have it conformed after we had our uh, work print edited. If you don't know what a conformist does, basically a conformist takes your negative and they cut the negative into A and B rolls, which is shots on this roll, shots on that roll, back and forth, back and forth, and then there's leader in between so that that way when they uh, print the film, the actual physical film, there's no flash cuts when cuts happen. So we had to go to Chicago because that was the closest uh, negative conformist. And then we picked up the negative from the conformist, and then we drove to, Ch- then we drove to Toronto. <laughs> and then Toronto's five hours away. And because of the exchange rate at 40%, which means that if you had $10 U.S., it was um, – well, basically, if you had $6 U.S., you got $10 Canadian. That's what it was at the time, 1997, 98 And we drove to Toronto, and we had a place in Toronto actually strike our print. They did a Best Light print for us, and then they also did our video. So they did a Video Master for us. So this is what you're looking at right now is actually the Video Master. The problem that we had with that print, though, was that we went to our premiere, our final reel – which was um, about 20 minutes, was out of sync by about four frames. Oh. <laughs> and I didn't know this until we screened it. So we're there, we're screening the print, and I'm looking at the faces, and I'm like, what the fuck is that? It's out of print. And I go fucking nuts. There it is right there. You see the cross with the, the stirs and the garlic? Yep, yep, yeah. yep. So anyway, uh, so I'm like, what the fuck? I'm like, everything's out of fucking sink what the fuck is going on and i thought it was the projectionist but it wasn't the projectionist because this was a really like you know great projectionist so we got the print back and we looked at it and jerry like i said my friend jerry frederick who mixed this and mixed evil dead he went to the premiere and he's like calm down calm down there's nothing you can do there's nothing you can do don't worry about it he goes most people won't notice because they're used to watching out of sync television anyway so don't worry about it and, um, so, so, so Jerry called me down and we looked at it and you could look at the optical, you know, cause the optical is 24 frames up and right. when we put the tail with the two beep, which, you know, if you've ever seen a countdown leader, four, three, boop, you know, that two beep will tell you exactly how far it was out. And it was four frames out and that's how mm. we knew. So, so it was, it, it, it it was a lovely premiere. I was very happy to have it, but I was so fucking pissed.
0: <laughs> well, yeah, it's, what, one-sixth of a second, yeah. so yeah. I'm sure you noticed I it, noticed. but I'm sure that the people in the audience were yeah. none the wiser.
2: Now, uh, Stephanie, you know I love Stephanie, real quick. I love Stephanie in this. She, She... This is this comeuppance. You know, we talked about it in the Ambersons, the Magnificent Ambersons, the comeuppance. <laughs> this is the comeuppance. Ryan gets comeuppance from Stephanie, and this shot is probably my favorite shot in the entire film. And I'll tell you why, because she's framed really well, she's lit really well, and she's fucking angry, and I love it. I mean, there's so much passion in the shot, and I love it. And and Stephanie, I think, has gone on to be a school teacher in the Detroit area. I haven't seen her in twelve years, probably, but she was also an after April. And I haven't seen her in twelve years and she was just a phenomenal actress. She was always game. Put her in this sort of like S and M outfit, as you see. You know, because all vampires are S and M people, of course. They all gotta wear black and, you know, leather and
0: I saw the hunger, I know.
2: Yeah. So <laughs> it's cliche. But uh, anyway, she's so fucking good. And the other thing is is if you see this in the sixteen, you can barely see it in the back. She has this thing that's holding her hair back and I just love the way it kind of floats. This sort of feather that holds her hair back, and in the light and everything, it just really plays really well. And I love it. I love this. I don't want one of the 108 diseases you probably have. You know, the one thing I laughed about in this scene, and think about a time, was she says, "Your Rolodex is the goddamn yellow pages." I'm like, "Oh, so he's fucking business owners?" That's pretty <laughs> now the white pages <laughs> make sense, but the yellow pages? Oh yeah, of course. I only right. business owners.
0: <laughs> let your fingers do the walking buddy <laughs> so
2: so here's um here's Mike again god fucking Mike oh, love that guy he's a great guy he Said I, I lost touch with a lot of these folks Dean's really the only one I really talk to anymore Alex So, and Greg yeah I talked to Greg so like I said Greg has a film called The Joint get a chance to see it see it it's really fun Especially if you smoke some dope and then watch it because it's about marijuana uh, dispensaries.
0: Well, with you being in Colorado, you should be able to get your hands on that (laughs) fairly easily.
2: Yeah, it works really well. So, Mm -hmm. okay, downtown Detroit, Leland City Club. This is actually in the parking lot of... The same place where they had the whole like, car, oh, we're going to crash, oh my god. That, that was in actually the parking lot of a church in Warren around the corner from Sean's house. So, so this is all the fucking beautiful magic of movie making. You know The fact that you could shoot in like 10,000 different places, you can put this shot here and this shot there. As a matter of fact, going back to that whole thing about the janitor being tied up that reaction shot of Ryan is in the same parking lot. We just put everything really dark behind him, and we just lit his face, and we just put the reaction shot in because we didn't have a reaction shot. We needed one. So there you go. Very nice. See, it's uh, there's so much trickery involved in filmmaking. So here's this pullback, and it would have been really nice if the pullback was nice and smooth. Yeah. fucking shaky.
0: And then it would have worked with this as being kind of tracking so. around.
2: Yeah. So this pull-in here, who we're meeting right now, is the character of Clyde. And this guy, Eric Jan, has been in some other stuff. I think he may have been in one of Doug Schultz's films. I'm not exactly sure. Doug Schultz, uh, you heard, of course, on our Mimesis episode. when We talked to Sid Haig. But um, Where the Weak are Killed and eaten Exactly. Detroit, Where the Weak are Killed and eaten. This is a very famous T-shirt, if you're from Detroit. Uh, that one next to, uh, you know come back we missed you with the gun on it welcome to mm-hmm. we missed you. uh eric jan used to be a cop i don't know if he still is he was a cop down river became an actor he's been in a few other things he was in a film called rachel's attic which you can look up which is another michigan product and the whole thing i love about him is he's supposed to be a gay vampire okay but of course he's big and fat and gnarly and he's the guy who's responsible, as we learned, for turning Alex, Dean's character, into a vampire. So there's this whole kind of uh, attitude that they have with each other where it's like, oh, you will know, like me, you know, because, you know, he's not afraid of me because I'm a vampire. He's afraid of me because I'm gay, which in 1997, that's probably true. It's probably true today in certain parts of the country <laughs> people would be more afraid of <laughs> fucking gay people that are vampires, but anyway. So, by the way, just to let you know, this is Drunken Commentary. I am three drinks in. So, there we are. Um, I'm about a quarter of the uh, way through this fifth of uh, tin cup whiskey, and I'm enjoying it quite a bunch.
0: So. Eric Chan has been in a bunch of stuff. I'm looking him up on IMDb, and he's been in at least 18 films, Yeah, I mean, Eric, including Blood Orgy at Beaver Lake. See,
2: Eric is a great guy. I the, Another person I lost contact with Maybe I can find him on Facebook. Just a phenomenal guy, a lot of fun. We had a great time working with him on this. And he was totally game because in 1997, I mean, going, okay, you're going to be a gay guy. I don't know about that, man. No, no, no. no. <laughs> he came in. He was totally game. And he was a cop. He was like he was like a Monroe County Sheriff's deputy or something. I mean, and a cop to play a gay dude? Really? You know? That's like, that. that's really going over the line. You know, because cops are you know, big macho straight dudes, right? No, 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 no.
0: He was in a show called Star Trek Osiris, huh. which apparently is shot here in Detroit. Yeah, I've never even heard of it.
2: Yeah, I don't know. Like I said, he, huh. he was in a lot of local production. There was a film called Rachel's Addict where he actually got to play a cop, and. um he did a really he was
0: good. totally unbelievable in that one.
2: No, he was really good. <laughs> it's actually a halfway decent film. I think Gunnar Hansen is in it because there was this thing where in Detroit we have this love of, uh, at that time in the 90s and early 2000s, of hiring, um, you know, horror names for our films. And Doug Schultz will tell you all about that if you want to go listen to Mimesis. So.
0: You know, you're talking about your friend Jerry and where he was working and everything, and I don't think that too many people realize what a hub Detroit was of production companies for a long time, thanks to the commercials and the auto industry.
2: Jerry told me that Detroit was the third biggest film in terms of the amount of film that was rolling through. time it was it was la new york and detroit and the reason being because we had jam handy we had commercials we had the auto industry we we had all this stuff we um if you want to go watch uh, manos go watch manos the uh, mst3k version of manos there's that uh, hired on the front which is a jam handy film which is a chevrolet sales film that was made in detroit in the 1930s go watch that i mean Detroit also was a pioneer in terms of film because of Henry Ford. Henry Ford, a matter of fact, the the, the company that did my um, did all of my processing on this in Detroit was a place called Filmcraft Lab at the time. Oh yeah, and Filmcraft Lab, their lab in Detroit. It's not there anymore. It was torn down. It was on Sibley near um, between Cass and uh, Woodward. It's down near where Tiger Stadium and the Fox Theater is. Uh, That was torn down. They had the original film vaults, the original nitrate vaults, where Henry Ford shot stuff and kept his stuff. So, I mean, that is what we're talking about. I mean, there is such a history in terms of film that was shot in Detroit. It's incredible. A lot of it is industrial, yes. But when we talk about actual features, we want to talk about Michigan-made film. You have something like Anatomy of a Murder. You have um, Evil Dead. You know, I mean, there's so much great stuff that came out of Detroit, and there's so many people that came out of Detroit that went to L.A. and made big impacts. Like I said, people like Jerry Bruckheimer, who worked with uh, Jerry Frederick, who was my re-recording master mixer on Tainted, all the Renaissance guys, being Sam Raimi, Bob Tappert, I mean, they did Hercules, they did Xena, they did all of that stuff, and... It just there's so many people that came out of Michigan. Uh, Kristen Bell, right now they're talking about the Veronica Mars movie. I mean, she's from Michigan. I mean, there's so many people that are from Michigan, you know. I mean, at, nobody's from LA, they're all from the Midwest, <laughs> it's just the way it is. <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. Well no, we we kinda talked about that with Chris Gore a few months ago where it yeah. was like uh you know, all the the, the Michigan mafia. Oh you know.
2: Yeah. yeah, it totally is. And there's a t entire expat community in LA and when I get the when I get the Orbit book done, which features Chris Gore and a little bit about Film Threat, I'll be going to L.A., and I'll be calling in my favors to try and sell some books out in L.A. Because believe me, these guys are going to know what fun was. They're going to know what Orbit was, and it's, it's going to be a lot of fun. This house right here is actually Sean's mother's house. This is in, in Warren, and uh, this, is, this is where we shot this whole scene. So just so you know. I feel like I'm just talking way too much.
0: (laughs) No, you've got a lot to say. Everything I'm busting with (laughs) is is just lame. So, So. I'm still thinking about the whole, you know, the commercial center and stuff. Like when I graduated from college, it was, you know, oh well, if you want to go into advertising, you're in the right place because Detroit is a hub for advertising. It's like. Really? you got to be kidding me. It's like, no, J. No. Walter Thompson, they're over on no. you know, Madison Avenue, and they're here.
2: J. Walter Thompson uh-huh. and Campbell Ewald, for the longest time, were the two you know, advertising centers for all the auto industry. matter of fact, J. Walter Thompson, if you didn't know this, Elmore Leonard worked at a J. Walter Thompson. He wrote copy for Chrysler. No, it was a Chrysler. It was uh, Chevrolet. And during the day, much like we'll do now when we're on our computers, and don't tell me you don't do this, um, he would open up the drawer in his desk, because I asked him about this when I interviewed uh, Elmore, um, and he would write on a notepad in his desk. And when the boss would come by, he would shut the drawer huh. and then get back to what he was doing. And then he would take those pages home and he would type everything up. And that's until he got to a point where he was able to make enough money doing short stories and novels to become Elmore Leonard, who we all know and love and sadly has passed away. But... He told me, he's like, my first job was writing copy for for Chevrolet ads. He's like, it sucked. It was horrible. But he goes, it offered me the opportunity to do my writing as well. So, you know, there's so many people that came out of that. And it's just been, you know, Detroit, this is not bragging. Detroit is the most important city in the last 100 years, hands down. And if anybody wants to argue with me, you may say, okay, New York, maybe L.A., Whatever. But when we talk about what are you driving today? That's Detroit. When we talk about the music, be it John Lee Hooker, Motown, Funkadelic, Parliament, fucking Stooges that started punk rock, okay? Bob Seger, Ted Nugent, you know. Um, you said Iggy Pop? Iggy, yeah, Stooges, Iggy Pop, you know, Jack White, Eminem. Eminem is considered the greatest rapper of all time, even by folks who have a different skin color than him, okay? Detroit is the most important city in the last hundred years. And I'll tell you what, it's also the city of the future. And you want to know why? Because it represents the rise and the fall of this country. It represents everything that Americans fear. That'll happen to them. And that's what Detroit is. Anyway, this right here, this guy. (laughs) Let me get off my soapbox. Is
0: this Glenn Danzig?
2: He looks like it, but actually, Dean... I can't remember his last name, but Dean looks more like Trent Reznor if he didn't have all that makeup and shit on his face. He worked (laughs) at a record store in Detroit that I used to go to called Absolute Music, which was in uh, Clinton Township. And we asked him to play this part of The Dead Vampire. And the idea was... That Dean was trying to track down the next person on that list. Remember that list? Okay, there's this guy, this guy, this guy, killed this guy, here's the next guy. And he's the next guy that Slane, the vampire, killed. So Alex, Dean's character, was trying to track him down because he was hoping that he could save him before Slane showed up. And this guy, he was awesome. I love this guy. He was the guy who showed me in store at uh, Absolute Music the Happiness and Slavery video the first time (laughs) on a VHS tape, and it blew my fucking mind. Bob Flanagan. If you haven't seen Sick, Bob Flanagan, the documentary on him, which was done by Kirby Dick, who did – this film has not uh, been rated. Is that what it's called?
0: Not yet rated, yeah. Yeah.
2: Go see that. It's on, I think it's on Netflix, Instant. It's fucking amazing. Bob Flanagan, the super masochist. Sadly, he's dead. He had, um, did he also have ALS? I can't remember.
0: He had, um, cystic fibrosis. fibrosis.
2: Yeah. yeah. And Bob Flanagan was this guy who, um, he was just a masochist. Like, he was married to this woman. And he was the happiest guy on the planet because she used to like, you know, put clothespins on him and, you know, fuck him in the ass with, giant dildo or something i don't know but it was really um he just had this thing with masochism with pain and if you've ever like do yourself a favor go see the happiness and slavery video i'm sure you can find it on youtube maybe an edited version if you can find the unedited version it's even better and it's just so powerful it's just so raw cuz all i remember is this guy is like in this dentist chair and there are these claws that, like, rip into him, and in the end, he's, like, pushed through a, um, like a meat grinder. And it's just it's so amazing. Nine Inch Nails is such a great song. This gal here is uh, Belinda, and she was also part of our acting class. And this is at a place called the Van Dyke Park Hotel. She pours coffee like she means it. Yeah, she means it. Um, This place no longer exists. The Van Dyke Park Hotel failed, and it was turned into a senior center. And it's located at – it's right over by the GM Tech Center, which is on Van Dyke, just north – just south of 15 Mile. So it's like uh, Chicago Road and Van Dyke. And then we shot this. I don't even know if this restaurant still exists inside of there. But um, you'll notice all the Detroit stuff. There's Lion and there's Grant Hill because Grant Hill was the big business time and there's Tigers. And um, so they stop at this place to get something to eat, and that's where we're at here. <laughs> He's drunk right now. Give him a break. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
0: Seems that like there's something about Bob the supermasochist I was going to say. I
2: can't believe there's only eighteen. 80- 18 minutes left. Congratulations if you've made it through this far. <laughs>
0: I'm pretty fucking
2: drunk, <laughs> as you can tell. I
0: can kind of tell, yeah. I'm trying, You're getting more hyper, and I'm getting more laid back.
2: I'm trying to be coherent, but I don't necessarily know if it's working. Mm. So, there you go. You're coming through loud and clear. <laughs> but, you know, this film, like I said, this was my film school, man. You know, it really was like you can spend 30 grand or probably 60 grand, 50 grand now. Go to fucking UCLA, you know, and maybe you get to make a short film, right? Mm -hmm. This we did for 35,000. Wasn't really my money. I probably spent a thousand dollars over two years in terms of the amount of money I put into this thing and I got to do everything I got to right. do Onset Sound I got to edit I got to produce I got to do all the pro- you know promotion on this thing I did interviews I got to go to f- I got trauma to pick this up really? and then I got to go to Cannes in 1999 for the craziest week of my life it was fucking wonderful I loved it Ron Jeremy. Well, I didn't meet Ron Jeremy then but oh, okay. I met Will Keenan and I met you know, Trent Haga, and I met um Debbie Rashawn and I met everyone who was involved with uh Terra Firmer and I really got to know Lloyd and She's wearing a riddles t shirt. Which was the name of the bar
0: we did I this. remember we used to do commercials for them <laughs> over at, at Comcast. Riddles, yeah. yeah. I remember that logo. And uh
2: I got to meet all these great people. And I had all this great opportunity because Sean decided he wanted to make a film. And no matter what anyone thinks of this movie, like the worst review I ever got of this, and I think I talked about this and why when I do Projection Booth, I I don't go personal. I never go personal. (laughs) Is because someone said in a review, if Farley, who you're seeing right now sitting on the shitter – uh, and Saint Mary believe that this is their ticket to Hollywood. and both of their cribs were painted with lead based paint, <laughs> meaning that we're both fucking retarded because we've right. eaten lead chips. Um, I I've never gone personal because I understand what that means. I understand how hard you work on these fucking things. You know, I understand how hard it is to make a fucking movie. You know, most people don't know because they never made one. You know, yeah, and I just. I just really wanted to make the best film we could make with what we had. And I know it's like one notch above kind of like public access, but to be honest, like I said, the reviews have been amazing. Like some people have been like, you know what? This is next to Cannibal the Musical and Surf Nazis Must Die and Redneck Zombies. This is like one of the best films in the trauma catalog that isn't made by Lloyd you know
0: well what i'm seeing is is competent acting and competent filmmaking i mean yeah there's a couple shots that are out of focus and everything but it's like you know i've seen so much worse and to me, movies live and die by their acting a lot of times, especially when it's lower budget. And it's like, if you get a clunky actor in there, you know, forget about it. And these guys, you well, know, I'm believing what they're saying.
2: Well, that was, the con- that was part of the conversation that got me fired off after April, actually, because Sean's brother, Ryan, wanted to do a drama. And I said, You can't do a drama with, with no name actors and people who can't act. I go, If you have people who can kind of act, you do genre. Do genre. Do a horror film. Don't do a fucking, do a fucking drama. What are you, fucking right. nuts? I go, you're going to shoot yourself in the head. I go, the reason why we did fucking Tainted and made it a vampire film was because people like vampires. And I remember when we showed this. We showed this at the Detroit International Film Festival a year after we made it. And someone said to me, well, I've seen better films than yours locally, but why is yours getting all the attention? I go, because it's fucking genre. People like vampire films. Exactly. I go, that's why. This right here, I love this shot. Dean did so well on this, where we pan over to the mirror and we come back and he's not there in the mirror, playing up the whole thing of idea of vampires and they can't see their reflection.
0: That's funny. I almost made a remark about that when we were in uh, City Club.
2: He He did such a good job with delivering this monologue. He did it, ducked down, under the sink in that bathroom and came back up and you can't tell you can't fucking tell that's how good that guy is. Okay. That was 17 years ago. That's my friend from high school. A year after we got (laughs) double graduating and he could do that. You can't tell in his voice that he's fucking ducking under the sink. It's amazing, you know, but no, I mean, that's why we did a genre film. That's why we did a fucking vampire film. You could have did this as, as a as straight comedy. This is a straight drama, whatever. But people wouldn't have watched it. They tune in because it's a vampire film. That's why Troma wanted it. This movie has no fucking boobs. It has very little blood. When Troma picked it up, I didn't really know Troma all that well, to be quite honest, when they picked it up. (laughs) I think I saw Tiger's Avenger once. But I became very interested in their entire catalog once they picked up the film. And I have to think a guy named Kevin... Casaletta, I believe was his name, who was head of acquisitions when I sent my videotape to him. Him and a guy by the name of Mike Butler at the time, who was head of Trauma Team Video. We went to Pittsburgh, and we sold this thing to a distributor. We sold it to several other sub-distributors because, you know, Barnes & Noble at the time, Borders, all the other video stores and chains and stuff like that. They bought from sub-distributors. So we went and we brought snacks for them, and I went there and saw like
0: Ingrams
2: and all those guys, yeah. Ingram, yeah. As a matter of fact, it was Pittsburgh. And we went there and we shook hands with them and we said hi and we brought them cheesecake. And we, <laughs> you know, <laughs> They're like, it's Rob St. Mary. He's the fucking producer of Say hi. And it was wonderful. Wow. So, you know, Troma did that. They, like, put me up at a hotel and they're like, go to fucking Pittsburgh and wine and dine these fucking distributors and get them to buy their movie. And the one – um company that I have to thank, Rental Video Store, and they're still around and I fucking love them. When mm-hmm. I lived in Detroit, I, I used to rent from them all the time, is Family Video. They're mostly in the Midwest. but Fam- They're still around, yeah, man. Family Video bought like 500 copies of Tainted for their entire chain, and I love them because of that i will always love them because of that because they they took a chance on my stupid little film and it was uh, it was wonderful so so now we're we're at the big reveal here where not only is slain bleeding the vampires but he works in the blood bank and he's trying to taint all of the blood supply in the city and the guy who he walked by who you just saw which you'll see in a minute. Uh, again, is another guy who also was in Stalag 17. So this actually – we actually got access to a hospital to shoot this. And what's funny is <laughs> – <laughs> I was thinking about this – is um, the blood is stored under the sink. You see, he's like at the sink, <laughs> and he opens under the sink, and he pulls the blood bags out, right? And he, right. Sort of thing. It's like, who stores the blood under the sink at a hospital? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, there's Brian. There's the director cameo. He's kind of annoyed. But anyway, um, this is a place called Kern Hospital. I don't know if it's called that anymore. It's on DeQuinder, just, south, uh, just north of 8 Mile in Warren. And there's uh, th- that's uh, Brandon. And he was also in Stalag 17. He actually played the... If you see the film version, he plays the Peter Graves character, who's the traitor, who actually is a German spy who's in with all the other characters. If you're not familiar with Stalag 17, it was the basis for Hogan's Heroes. You probably know Hogan's Heroes better. So this, I think, was actually our first weekend shooting, our first night shooting. And um, it's just this, like, fight scene and uh, setting up all this stuff towards the end. (laughs) And... uh, (laughs) So it's uh where the fuck was I? I'm kinda drunk. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I would get this fucking drunk,
0: man. Well let's see, you talked about keeping blood under the sink. Yeah. You talked about uh the guy from Stalag seventeen.
2: So I made those steaks. I <laughs> the steak that he uses through the film, I made those in my uh in my uh my dad's garage. <laughs> nice, I sawed them down, and I filed them up and everything and like i said these these fight scenes are pretty funny, actually, <laughs> I think they do a good job with it i mean uh they they don't uh you know I mean considering what we had, we did all right, you know if it well,
0: was you actually had you and Ping actually did the uh fight choreography fight. isn't that true? It's
2: all on wires it's all oh on
0: wires. okay, <laughs> yeah, I'm not a big wire foo fan, you know. <laughs>
2: Yeah. But the thing that's funny is Benny, who I told you about, who helped us coordinate all his fighting, he actually was like a black belt in some martial art or whatever. But I love this. It's this so simple. Dean's character picks it up. Guy turns. Bam! He hits him with a fucking stake. Yes, right through the heart. Let him run towards you. It's a total judo move, you know? Use his power against you. So beautiful. And he takes him down. And what's the final line that he says to him as he fucking gives it to him? He says, thank you. That's right. Put me out of my fucking misery. You know? Yes. Nice. Because people, people like this, people who are so sadistic, people don't want to take it out on other people. They want to be put out of their misery. That's the, one of the things that I learned about bullies. As a matter of fact, when it comes to that steak, you see that steak he's holding there, Jason? Mm-hmm. That's a half steak, as a matter of fact. The, uh, we, we had one that was cut in half, and we— painted with blood so he's just sort of holding a half piece of wood up to his chest so I've ruined it for you I know there you go movie magic once again I
0: think they call a half steak a filet mignon
2: <laughs> it is it's very small if you get some butter on it it's a London broil so there you go nice so I'm enjoying this whiskey I gotta tell you look it up it's called uh, tin cup I'm gonna put a link to it up on there so here we are we're burning the cooler full of tainted blood That's how it ends. What time is it? It's 1245. Well, you know, if we hurry up, we can catch uh, Daryl Hannah, catch uh, Harris Tordner crotch. Oh, yeah, we got to get there for that. Of course you do. Because that's fucking awesome scene in Blade Runner. If you haven't seen Blade Runner, go look at it. And then once you watch Blade Runner, go listen to our Blade Runner episode. So here we are, the end of Tainted. Yes, thank you for spending the time with Mike and I as I get uh, exceedingly drunk and tell you about life when I was 19 years old, 17 odd (laughs) years ago, here on what is today's date. Today is May 14th. 2014 dedicated to the memory of michael farley 1947 1997 that sean's dad as i told you he was fire marshal of the city of warren michigan very nice guy only met him a couple of times but it was his money it was his inheritance that helped to make this movie possible of 30 odd thousand dollars that we helped to to spend to make this movie and speaking of thirty five thousand dollars, which we Spent to make this movie. If I had $35,000 today with the techniques that you can do, I could remake the fucking Lord of the Rings trilogy. Because it is so cheap to make a really good-looking film. So, Stacey Murphy, that's the woman who's in the bed in the beginning. Oh my god, I haven't thought of her in years. So, um... You know, we even we even credited the fucking dogs. Ryan's dog, <laughs> Mike's dog, Red, the gas station attendant. Yeah, that's me. Alright, there you go. So, Red. Dean, we just have him listed as Dean Marcus Stoll, the Dead vamp. Dean. I don't even know what his fucking last name was. So
0: all the bar, no wonder you couldn't.
2: Yeah, all the bar extras. Those are just people from uh, Jamin Fight. Actually, Jamin Fight is uh, is a guy who did some uh, stuff. He was the camp commandant. And Style Like 17, which we did. Throw Another Jesus on the Barbecue, It's my friend Chris Zurbanski did that. <laughs> Benny Sorrentino. Jerry Frederick, Motion Picture Sound, of course, got to thank him. Film Lab. Editing R Us, Glendale, California. Like I said, they shipped all this shit out to us, and we edited it. Uh, Lucille Peak at Peak Film. It was just wonderful. Fumbling Towards Ecstasy. That's the fucking album. Jesus Christ. I can't even remember Sarah McLaughlin. Anyway, go ahead. I got nothing. <laughs> <laughs> so Jesse McClear, Heavy Water Factory, Battery, Black Magic Crossing. I don't even think they exist anymore. They were a, a local band that was sort of a hip-hop band, uh, which is on the radio in on one, one of the scenes. 16 Volt, Die War Zoo, Killing Floor. All these were like industrial bands that Brian was really into at the time. And uh, we just contacted them and said, "Hey, we like your stuff. Would you be willing to um, you know let us use your use your music? This theme that you 're hearing over the end credits this was written by Battery, which you see right there, exclusively for tainted batteries, courtesy of cop international, Maria and Battery, and all them They were just an amazing, amazing group to work with and i I, I really loved them very much for doing that i mean the the song is probably better than the film, to be quite honest. Uh, I don't think – I think it's been released in a couple of different versions. If you can find it, please do. It's a wonderful, wonderful thing. Sadly, Mike Are we'd like to thank. Uh, he was a local media guy. He actually worked with Ted Nugent when Ted Nugent had a radio show in Detroit. And uh, Mike has passed away. Just a beautiful, beautiful guy. I loved him very much. And then we thank like our favorite film – people, you know, Sean and Brian and I, because it's just ridiculous. You know, we're young kids. Mr. St. Mary would like to thank my folks for putting up with me during this production. My first thank, and I talked about this on the fucking Manos episode, MST3K is the best film school ever. So I thank them first. <laughs> Truffaut, Goddard, the Coen brothers, Scorsese, Kubrick, Orwell, uh, Carlin, okay, Marie Azar, who's my my High School English teacher who told me not to be a high school English teacher, Aeroflex cameras, which we used, and then the last line you get right here, we just want to make everyone happy. we just want to make everybody- what the fuck does that even mean Okay, right. Let me explain this to you, okay. when we were shooting the downtown Fleming scene and it's, and this was right before the scene where um, dean 's character. Takes out the two thugs on the street. If you remember that scene. Um this guy walks up, and he's dressed in hospital scrubs. Uh huh. Maroon hospital scrubs. I'll never forget this. And we're like, we got the camera, we got the sound equipment, we got my actors. There's like five or six of us there. Uh huh. And I'm like, can we help you? And he's just staring at us. And I'm like, What the fuck is this? So I go over to him and I go, Okay, sir, you know, thank you. You know, we're we're trying to finish what we're doing here. And he turns to us and he goes, Yeah, we all just want to make everyone happy. (laughs) And then he turns and walks away. (laughs) And I said, and we stood there and we watched him as he walked like three or four blocks away. And I was like, what the fuck was that? What was that? What the fuck was that? And I'm like, we all just want to make everyone happy? And the guy's in hospital scrubs? And the only thing I could figure was that Mount Clemens General Hospital, it's now called something else. Mount Clemens General Hospital is only about a mile and a half away. Maybe this guy was a psych patient that walked away from Mount Clemens General Hospital and somehow ended up in downtown Mount Clemens and saw us, came over to us because we looked interesting at like midnight and decided to go, hey, how are you doing? And it totally freaked us out. so i'm like (laughs) you have to put that in the film somewhere so we decided to put that as the last credit you see on the film we all just make everyone happy (laughs) 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 so there you go that's tainted i mean thanks for hanging out with me and mike and listening to me ramble for 90 percent of this thing as opposed to mike you know he's asked me a couple questions but Usually I ramble. <laughs> <laughs> I hope it's not too crazy. I mean, I am kind of drunk. But like I said in the preface to this thing, the idea was that supposedly I was supposed to get drunk and do this in front of an audience. And since that never happened, I thought, why not do this as a April Fool's Day, but a serious April Fool's Day gift to all the listeners of the projection booth? Because not only will you get to listen to Mike and I, Here's some stories about my life, making this film, so you understand where I'm coming from in terms of being a film, you know, critic, I guess. And um you know, all of that stuff in terms of my past. I just wanted to do this. I thought I thought it'd be kind of fun. I had a good time, Rob. <laughs> did you did you actually watch the film? Did you actually like it? Yeah. I did. Did could you hear what what was going on. Could you understand what was going on beyond me rambling?
0: No, you, well, you also were giving tips as we're going along. So you're good.
2: (laughs) I don't really think it needs much tips. I think that, you know, because we were such film fanatics, you know, Sean was a film reviewer, watched a lot of movies, worked in a video store, not a rental store at the time though. Um, I think it makes a lot of sense. I, I think it, I think that the reason, like I said, that the reviewers have been so nice to us when it first came out on, on VHS and later on DVD in 2004, 10 years ago now, is that it is coherent. You know, there is a plot. Um, it makes sense. It's funny, <laughs> it's got some good lines. Um, but to be honest, you know, when you stack it up against a lot of trauma product, uh, it's not really a trauma film <laughs> in that way, you know? It's not boobs and blood and gore and things like that. I mean, and it's... But at the same time, I I can't tell you how proud I am to be part of trauma. You know, you've heard it, me say it before when I talk about Lloyd or we bring Lloyd on the show like we just did with, um, you know, Big Gus and things like that on the show. You know, this man... You know, it's no bullshit. Um, When Lloyd passes on, I'm going to fuck, I'm going to cry. You know, I'm going to be really torn up for a long time because, you know, he's a man who saved my sanity, you know, when I think about it. Because if this film, you know, my mom didn't want me to make this movie when I was 19. She wanted me to keep going to school. You go to college, be a high school English teacher, (laughs) you know, all that stuff. And um, Lloyd saved my sanity because if this movie would have ended up in a fucking closet somewhere and nobody ever saw it and never would have got out, I don't know how I would have handled it, man. You know, and my mom didn't support me when I did this. And years later, she told me, she said, it wasn't because I didn't believe in your dream. It was because I was scared for you. I was worried that if this didn't work out for you, that you would do something bad. You would hurt yourself, that, you know, you wouldn't be here. And, um, yeah, I understand that, you know, because moms, you know, moms love their kids. At least they should. And, um... You know, for a long, you know, for a couple of years, I was kind of pissed at her because she didn't support me. You know, <laughs> but um, but I understand that I really do, and uh, you know, I love my mom. You know, we get along really well, and uh, you know, it's just, yeah, uh, you know, I, I, this is my bastard child. He'll always be out there, and uh, you know, if somebody gets a chance to see it and they have a laugh. You know, then I guess I did my job, you know. It, uh, it, was, it was a lifelong dream I mean I, when I went away to school right after high school I went to Eastern Michigan University I went there for one, one semester and I had, I had a bad time and I came back home and I went to Wayne State and then I dropped out of school and I made this film and I wrote in my journal in 2006 in the fall of 2006 I said my goal my goal is to have my name on the front credits of a film in 10 years he's a producer, director, writer you know that was my goal and um, and I did it in two years. And n- no matter what happens, they'll never take that away from me, man. They'll never take that away from me. They'll never take this film away from me. They'll never take the memories that I have of Can 19- nineteen ninety nine away from me. Fifteen years ago, and all the great people that I met, and uh, you know, great friends that I have. Go listen to Terra Firmer. Go listen to Tromeo and Juliet episode, and you'll you'll hear that. You'll hear that with Will Keenan you know, because that's where we connected. And, you know, anyone who is part of the trauma family, they understand. They understand that passion. They understand what it's about. And, uh, it's just a beautiful thing. And I'm always, I'm always gonna be grateful for it, man. Awesome. Always. And I thank you, Mike, you know, you know, it's been a little over two years and I've been on a show and, I'm just, I fucking love doing it, man. And I've got, fucking, it's is so awesome that I got to meet so many great people, you know, on this show. You know, being our guest hosts and people to sit in with us or get to talk to people like Robert Downey Sr., man. When I did that Putney Swope episode, I was so fucking happy. You know, I mean, the guy's a fucking legend, man, to me. There's so many great people. That's wonderful. And I I thank everyone who who takes the time to listen every week (laughs) to what we have to say because who the fuck are we, man? Yeah. Just some fucking dude from Detroit and, you know, another dude who's from Detroit but now lives in the middle of fucking Colorado in the middle of nowhere, you know? It's like, who the fuck are we, you know? we just I I just want to have fun and tell people about shit that's fucking awesome. That's all I want to do. Yeah. And in case you can't figure it out, I'm really fucking drunk. (laughs) you know but it's okay you know it's okay and like i said i hope i hope you enjoyed watching tainted on youtube or if you bought a copy of it i thank you i don't get a nickel for it but if you want to help you know if you want to give me a couple of nickels do yourself a favor go to projection Booth. You know, projection com. hit the donate button and give us a couple of bucks. I mean, I don't know. You know, just, just keep doing what we do and, and, and keep pushing it forward because, you know, I, I fucking love this show, man. It's been just awesome. Well,
0: I recommend that you drink a lot of water before you go to bed. <laughs> <laughs> Rehydrate yourself. Thanks, man. Yeah, and uh, yeah, this has been great. Nice to spend a Friday evening with you, man. Thanks.
2: I I hope you liked it too. I I did. You know, I, it was a lot of fun. One of the first one of the first things I did, I, I the first episode I ever recorded with Mike was in Mike's basement, and we did Blood Sucking Freaks. And if you haven't watched Blood Sucking Freaks, watch it and then go listen to the show. And um, I think it was that time that I that I came over. I gave you a copy of Tain, and I'm like, here, you know, you don't have to watch it all whatever. And I'm glad you didn't watch it until now <laughs> because it's not something, you know, they, the people probably want to watch over and over again. But, you know, like I said, it has special memories for me and, you know, between making it and getting it out there and showing it to people and then going to can being in a one bedroom apartment with probably 20 people, which is probably a fire hazard. There's someone sleeping. <laughs> there was someone sleeping in the bathtub. When we weren't, right. I didn't sleep for four days because it was impossible. And by the fourth day, I started to hallucinate. And, uh, but it was, I mean, Can was like my fear and Loving in Las Vegas. Go watch fear and loathing in Las Vegas and you'll know what sort of like Can was like for me. It was crazy and it was amazing. And I met just phenomenal people. I was really pissed off that Ron Howard destroyed my. Uh, John Sayles autograph by signing his name next to John Sayles in my travel journal but it's okay now and I met I got an autograph from Forrest Whitaker who was fucking cool because he was showing Ghost Dog and Ken which I hope we'll talk about in the show someday but you know God fucking Ken was amazing it was 15 years ago it feels like it was two days ago and I was there when Lloyd said fuck you to the slam dance guys and said, I'm going to start my own fucking film festival, and I'm going to shove it up your ass in Park City <laughs> during Sundance, and I'm going to call it Trauma Dance, and it's going to be free. And I was there when that happened. And if you're a filmmaker and you have a short film, put your shit in the Troma Dance. Serious. It's like no entry fee. Lloyd does a fucking amazing job, and Just do yourself a favor. Just fucking buy, like, everything you can from trauma and just keep them going because Lloyd's an amazing guy. And I have so much respect for him and I love him so much. They're the last real independent film company in America. They really are. And um, we need those fucking crazy bastards more now than ever. (laughs) You know, we just do... And oh, God, I just love all those guys. I really do. So, yeah, I'm really fucking <laughs> <laughs>
1: This
2: is gonna be really fun to listen to. Not for me. <laughs> Not for me to listen to, but for you to listen to. So, I hope you enjoy this. <laughs> <sighs> All right, Rob. All right, sir. Well, thanks for spending the time with me. It was, it's was it been an honor, and thanks for taking the time to spend an hour and 49 minutes. Too fucking long than it needs to be, probably. With <laughs> tainted. Like I said, if I had the time and I had the ability, I would put it into digital editing, and I would cut out probably 15 minutes of this film. I mean, even if it's just that Roger Corman, like when I read Roger Corman's book, how I made you know, 100 films in Hollywood never lost a dime. Just taking frames—you know, first frame, last frame of every single shot—just tighten a film. You know, yeah, that's what needs to happen in this movie. I think if this film was about 10 minutes longer, it would be—it would be great. And the problem is, it's not. <laughs> so, <laughs> so if anyone wants to do a fan edit, please feel free. You know. <laughs> so, but there you have it.
0: We'll see if somebody picks up the gauntlet.
2: <laughs> but once again, like I said already, you know, this is really for you. And um, I'm, I'm just honored that each week you allow me to get the chance to talk to people <laughs> that I really want to talk to. You know, Because if you didn't listen and those numbers weren't where they are, nobody would come on our show. <laughs> <laughs> they <Right>. just wouldn't, <laughs> you know. They just wouldn't because they'd be like, "What?" You know. Oh, you know. But you know, getting the approval of things like the AV Club at the Onion, going, "This is fucking high quality shit." Listen to this fucking podcast because these guys know what they're talking about. It's it's been it's been one great ride, and uh, I'm honored to share my little thirty five thousand dollars cinematic atrocity with you this evening. So there you go. <laughs> All right, man.
0: Like I said, drink some water and uh, have a good night. And I will talk to you uh, Sunday.
2: Yes, and I want to thank everyone who on our page today gave us some hangover tips because I don't necessarily know if I'm going to use Marceline's uh, tomato juice, but I will be using some of your tips. In order to make sure I can fully recover from this, because uh, <laughs> I've drunk about probably a quarter of this fifth of whiskey. Wow! And, um, yeah, I'm I'm doing pretty good, but uh, I know that come early morning tomorrow, I will not feel so hot. <laughs> so, but I did It'll it for you. Worth it. I did it for exactly. you. Exactly. The sacrifices you make. It is. It, remember, it's the sacrifices we make for art exactly you know because art matters <laughs> and if you don't believe that then just don't bother listening to us anymore <laughs> just yeah. go away if you don't believe that art matters <laughs> not as
0: much as Artie Lang I don't
2: know about Artie Lang I mean I liked Beer League but it was okay I mean, I mean so anyway
0: oh, I'm sorry I meant
2: Artie Johnson <laughs> Artie Johnson very interesting but stupid yes <laughs> <laughs> I could kind of use my German accent there that I learned. There you go, Schultz. So, by the way, um, see Starlight 17. Even though William Holden won an Oscar for Starlight 17, we all know that he didn't deserve it for Starlight 17. He deserved it for Sunset Boulevard the year before. But the fucking Oscars, the Academy, in their infinite wisdom, decided to give it to him for Starlight 17. Not saying he's bad, but you all know out there, Sunset Boulevard... Oh, yeah, William Holden. And if you want to see grizzled old William Holden, you can't go any more better than the Wild Bunch, my good friends.
1: <laughs> Anywhere you want I know.